Black killers or Latino killers or Asian killers murder a bunch of people. Do they release manifestos? I'm not acquainted with that, but there's apparently now a whole literary genre of these angry young white men. So I noticed they're never married and they're loners. They're disconnected from other people and they spend a great deal of time online, particularly on 4chan. So I was just uh, taking a look at Richard Spencer's Twitter feed and he retweets someone says every time there's a mass shooting 4chan always claims the shooting is a conspiracy done by the feds to shut down free speech obviously I think that claim is ridiculous these people are unstable love to be victims at all costs and uh, Richard adds that uh, the anonymous free-for-all internet has contributed nothing to discourse or society okay that point I think is absurd right there's there's a lot that we've gained from anonymous free-for-all internet there's also a lot that we've lost but to to come up with this idea that that we only have prices to pay from a free-for-all internet and that there are no advantages to anonymity is absurd and anonymity frequently allows people to say things that they could not say with their names on them things that are valuable so richard says that a free-for-all internet has become a public health and national security catastrophe it's past time to shut it down so when the anonymous free-for-all internet was working in Richard's best interests, he was, he was all for it. And now that it's turned against him overwhelmingly the past four years, now he wants to shut it down. So someone goes out and murders people and uh, seems to be inspired by one section of the internet, 4chan poll. Is that, is that really a reason to shut down the, the free-for-all internet or to shut down all internet anonymity? That seems absolutely absurd. On the other hand, it is disturbing how many of these mass shooters seem to have developed their worldview from 4chan poll. Here's uh, CNN. Were killed when a gunman opened fire. This was at a supermarket in a largely black neighborhood in Buffalo. I seen the guy go in army style, bent over, just shooting at people, and I heard him shooting at people, and then I saw three people laying down. Officials say that Peyton Gendron, a white 18-year-old man, was wearing body armor and military-style clothing when he pulled up yesterday at the Topps Friendly Market and began shooting. He picked that spot specifically for its demographics, according to officials. They say he drove for more than 200 miles away to carry out the attack in an area that had a significant black population. He was very heavily armed. He had tactical gear. He had a tactical helmet on. He had a camera that he was live-streaming what he was doing. The suspect was immediately arraigned on first-degree murder charges, and more charges are... So whenever we do almost anything, we have a particular audience in mind. And it, it seems with this Buffalo shooting uh, guy, 18-year-old Peyton Gandron, that he had the specific audience of 4chan in mind, as did the shooter in Poway in San Diego, as did the shooter in Christchurch. So this latest manifesto seems to plagiarize liberally from the New Zealand shooters manifesto. So plagiarism seems fairly common with, with these mass shootings. Uh, didn't see a lot of typos. I, I read through the, this manifesto and uh, 
not a lot of typos, but uh, he's not a big fan of the Jews, in particular not a big fan of Hasidim. So he says the whole story of Hasidic community growth and its impact on established neighborhoods has been pretty much ignored by the mainstream press. I don't think that's true. There's been a lot of news coverage of uh, the Hasidic community. So Hasidic communities in Brooklyn, New Jersey City, Bloomingburg, Lakewood, Toms River, New Jersey are deplorable. He says attempts by local communities fight back are regularly met with claims that the locals are anti-Semites. So, yeah, a lot of people who simply want to preserve their community's mores against an invasion of outsiders, you know, whether the outsiders are Hasidic Jews or Syrian immigrants, uh, they tend to get tarred as, as racist. So, obviously, there's nothing inherently racist by wanting to maintain the integrity of your community, say, for example, limiting uh, McMansions, those, those big homes that people with, with big families, obviously, have, have more of an interest in erecting. So the shooter says, Hasidim routinely register their homes as places of worship. Well, their homes routinely are places of worship. So he says, Hasidim want to avoid property taxes. Yeah, a lot of groups want to minimize property taxes. In fact, it would be in everyone's best interest to minimize the amount of tax that they pay. The question is whether you're willing to go to illegal lengths to do so. Making other local residents pay for police and fire services as well as maintenance of infrastructure. Well, Hasidim, along with other Orthodox Jews, do not send their children to public schools. And so to the extent that they're paying taxes, they are paying to support schools that they never use. When sufficient Hasidim become residents to get elected to the public school board, they divert the funding of state-provided education to support their own private schools. Yeah, that, that often happens with, with various groups. As Hasidim get married within their community and do not register with the state, the women routinely file as single mothers to get public childcare subsidy checks. Yeah, so the, the public welfare system is widely abused, sometimes by Hasidim, sometimes by blacks, sometimes by non-Jewish whites, sometimes by Latinos and Asians. We have massive welfare abuse problems. The men often do not work at all so they can study the Talmud. And uh, many of them engage in welfare fraud, claim poverty to get food stamps, social security, and other services. Yeah, well, if a system is easy to abuse, it's going to be abused. And so there are two ways to approach this. One is to approach the supply side, the, the system that is providing these easy opportunities for abuse. And the other way is to approach the demand side. And that's where I've got an idea I think I think we we need charm schools for Hasidim. That's that's my new business venture. We'll have charm schools for Hasidim. We'll teach Hasidim, you know, how to use how to use knives and forks, how to say please and thank you, the appropriate and inappropriate use of government resources, uh, how to queue up you know, politely like Anglo's when it comes time for Kiddush or when it comes time for social services the importance of paying your taxes honestly, of getting along with your neighbors, how to say good morning, good afternoon, and good evening to non-Jews, how to treat uh, non-Jews with the same kind of respect, how to use, you know, which knife or which fork to use. So you're at an elaborate dinner and, and you've got, you know, all these knives and forks arranged outside your plate and how you work from the outside in. That's how you know what's the right knife and fork. So... Uh, generally speaking, Lubavitch Hasidim tend to have the best relationships with, with the non-Jews, tend to integrate better into wider society compared to 
uh, non-Lubavitch forms of Hasidim, where generally speaking, in non-Lubavitch forms of Hasidim, for example, the, the women do not even drive. Expected to follow. Federal agencies are now investigating the shooting as a potential hate crime and a case of racially motivated domestic terrorism. Now, authorities say 11 of the 13 people shot by this white suspect were black. They're reviewing a 180-page manifesto reportedly written by the shooter where he describes his perceptions about the dwindling size of the white population. CNN's Polo Sandoval is with us from Buffalo right now. Uh, Polo, what else have you learned about this shooting thus far? Yeah, certainly some disturbing details that investigators are basically pouring over in that manifesto that you just mentioned. As for the neighborhood itself, Christine Boris, the air is certainly heavy with sorrow as this community will be waking up as they continue to mourn the loss of many of their community members. That yellow and, tape that you uh, see still surrounding the grocery store this morning. Colin will likely Liddell. be up for some- uh, Colin, how are you today? Yeah, hi, Luke. Uh, fine, how are you? Good, good. So, so what's on your mind? Well, we, we seem to have this string of mass shootings by white men who are eager to identify as white supremacists who release uh, manifestos often widely plagiarized from from 4chan and poll uh t- to what extent do you think sites like 4chan poll uh radicalize young young men turn them into angry hateful killing machines well it's not uh the sites themselves i mean the sites are, are basically um platforms for certain content and uh they're placed basically they're platforms for a lot of kind of uh what we generally refer to as uh, alt-right content and so there there is a lot of uh, alt-right content out there um the authorities try to uh control it they try to deplatform it as much as possible uh groups like the adl the splc uh, they work very hard behind the scenes to um, uh, try to marginalize this content as much as possible to avoid people actually seeing it. Um, but nevertheless, you know, young kids, teenagers, they find ways of seeing this stuff. Um, you know, it sort of kind of reminds me of, uh, you know, like uh, back in the back in the uh, the old. Uh, the good old days when they used to um, when when porn was very very hard to 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 uh, get hold of, uh, but you know young teenage boys would find a way to uh, you know get their hands on it. So I think um, I think this uh, they're taking the wrong approach to dealing with this the, the, uh, this problem of um, radicalization through um, alt right content and. What do you think would be a better approach? Well, um, I think a lot more honesty is is required. I mean, I, another thing that's that's uh, on my radar right now is uh, the recent um, there was a recent documentary about patriotic alternative, and basically, patriotic alternative it is a classic uh, alt right group. Uh, i.e. they basically uh, have this theory that the um, the Jews are this uh, unseen evil power pulling the strings, creating the um, downfall of uh, the white man in the West. And that's basically the essence of the alt-right uh, view of the world. Um, and so the I think it was Channel 4, uh, a program called Dispatches, did a, uh, an expose of um, the patriotic alternative uh, pseudo political party it's not really a political party because it can't actually stand in elections 
uh, but it's a, a kind of movement and it's uh, sort of spreading uh, th through alternative alternative right uh, kind of methods you know on on the internet using memes uh, chat rooms telegram accounts and so on the usual way and most of that uh, documentary signally failed to really um deal with uh, the issues that uh, you know these groups thrive on and so i mean i think um they, there needs to be a lot more honesty, like let's just recognize that there is a problem and then you have to explain why that problem isn't just because of the Jews or isn't even because of the Jews. And so, you know, the very little attempt is made by these groups to, to sort of tackle uh, the content that the alt-right is putting out there. The alt-right has a theory. It's saying the Jews did this, the Jews did that. It's because of the Jews that this is happening. It's because of the Jews that that is happening. And they're not actually engaging with that. I mean, so the, the, the alt-right says lots of stuff that can, um, that can be easily deconstructed, that can be easily disproved, but uh, no attempt is made to do that. Instead, all they try to do is de-platform and de-platform and more de-platforming and when you de-platform like that people start to think you're afraid of what they're saying you're afraid of what they're saying because what they're saying must be right so this is the um this is the mistake that the people who are trying to de-radicalize are doing and also the term de-radicalize is very um you know um problematic as well because sometimes you know radical things are required and uh, I think uh, in the case of Western civilization, you know, there, there does have to be radical changes made for Western civilization to um, go go on in any sort of meaningful way. Spent much time on 4chan, Paul? Uh, a little bit, not very much, though, to be honest. I mean, usually I get sucked into uh, 4chan and Paul when something like the buffalo shooting happens because you want to actually find out what first of all you want to find out what what's going on and um the media do a very poor job of you know supplying you with the um the vital information as well and, and what so, do you, sorry go ahead you're gonna add no so that. i was just wondering what your uh, take on the the uh, buffalo shooter is what's your um you know main realization here I, I don't think I have one yet, but it's just disturbing. <laughs> I mean, that's just such a paltry reaction, but there's a, there's a trend, right? I remember in the Jewish community, there was the shooting at the synagogue in Pittsburgh and, and people kind of woke up to, to threats from that. But it was really only after the shooting in Poway, where I believe only one person was killed, but that this had become a trend of going into synagogues and shooting people up that uh, the Jewish community really started taking security much more seriously. And so now there's this whole trend of, of young men uh, essentially creating content out of mass shooting with the specific audience of 4chan poll in mind. So that's what, what stands out to me is that this is a trend. It's not like a, a one-off. It just happens again and again. Um. Yeah, I don't know if it's really a trend or, I mean, how significant is it statistically? It happens now and then. Um, you know, uh, there's a few cases that people refer to, 
it's, it's essentially a handful of cases at the moment. It might become a trend, and maybe that's what they're really afraid of. If uh, you know, because um, you know this this sort of thing can have a knock-on effect, especially with people in this particular age group, a bit like um, suicide. You know, like um, there is a kind of um, viral nature to things like that. So if somebody commits suicide in one particular town, that tends to increase the chances of other people in that town committing suicide. And I remember there was uh, the case of uh, this town in Wales where a lot of suicides were happening and it's, uh, they concluded that there was some sort of knock-on effect. And uh, you can also get um, similar effects with uh, serial killers and so on. So I guess they are worried about it becoming virile and um, spiraling out of control in some way. But at the moment, it's still r relatively, you know, sporadic and now and then, rather than a kind of tsunami wave. Uh, the other thing that, that grabs my attention is that I don't believe that, that white supremacy poses a, a giant threat to to Western civilization or to, you know, the health and safety of, of most people in, in the West. But what happens when more and more of these shooters identify as white supremacists? See, white supremacists has a particular meaning on 4chan poll. It's where, oh, we're going to take the worst thing that our our enemies say about us and we're going to embrace it. But I, I suspect that if you talk to, to this guy, Peyton Gendron, who, who committed the latest shooting, or the guy who shot up a black church in, in the South, that uh, none of them would really stand up to a label of white supremacists because they'd be happy to acknowledge that, that different groups are different gifts. But what happens when these shooters keep keep claiming the title white supremacist? It, it then it then becomes harder for those of us to argue that uh, white supremacy is a hoax. Um, what do you mean by white supremacy is a hoax? You mean that there is no such thing? Yeah, that that uh, if you were to talk to David Duke, he would have no problem admitting that there. Are, there are all sorts of areas where non-whites are superior to whites on average, statistically. Yeah, yeah. Well, we're, we're dealing with uh, what are sometimes known as hate facts. And, uh, you know, there are a lot of facts out there. They are, they have been studied. They have been scientifically validated in, in many cases. Um, they are things that people generally do believe in when they're not uh, being defensive about what they believe in. And so there is definitely a lot of, um, you know, hate facts out there. And most uh people have no problem thinking these things uh, in the privacy of their own minds. Uh, but when they enter the, uh, the social arena, they do become very problematic. Um, but uh, yeah, I mean, I think um, what, uh, what people like this young guy who did the shooting are concerned about, they're concerned about uh, whites uh, becoming a demographic uh, minority about their societies becoming multicultural, multiracial, where um, you know white norms are no longer the dominant norms. And I mean, I, I guess a white supremacist in um, today's parlance would be somebody who simply believes that uh, certain countries that are, have traditionally been dominated by whites should continue to be dominated by whites. And this it, this flies in the face of the ongoing demographic trends of course because the ongoing demographic trends are that uh, 
you know, uh, women in developed countries, i.e. white women, uh, in, in most cases, are having very, very uh, poor fertility. And these countries are inevitably, um, you know, replacing their, um, their population deficit with people from various third world countries like uh, South America and Latin America and uh, Africa and the Middle East and so on and China and places. And, uh, you know, people, a lot of people do feel very uncomfortable with this uh, trend. I mean, of course, there are people who push back against it. I've heard you yourself uh, push back against this trend, saying it's, it tends to be overstated. And I think uh, there's a bit of validity in that. But, the uh, you know, the long-term trends are for uh, traditionally white countries to become less and less white. And you can, you know, kind of quibble about the... Um, the the uh the time span of that process but uh that seems to be the the um the, the direction in which things are going and uh you know young kids thinking ahead like that and uh, maybe um exaggerating the speed at which it it may well be happening and maybe they're not exaggerating but you know who knows they're going to they're going to find that uh a kind of scary phenomenon you know and so um i think Anybody should should be up should be concerned about it because uh, when you are being racially replaced, that is effectively you know your group is dying and um, you're losing your existence um, in in the way that uh, people project it into the future, which is through their offspring and uh, their racial or identity group. And so, this is something that um, that rightfully disturbs people and um, but the, the problem is that uh you know the alt-right comes along with all these uh cockamamie uh, explanations well not not that many basically with one explanation for what, what's going on and uh it's this uh you know the standard explanation that it's the the, the big bad evil uh, invisible hand of the jews behind everything and that just makes people um you know react in a very negative way i think I'm not. I'm not a big fan of the great replacement uh, analysis, but it's interesting. Over the United Nations website, they've got a whole page, uh, pages, pages, and pages on replacement migration. Is it a solution to declining and aging populations? So, the the UN certainly believes in the the benefits of replacement migration for low fertility countries like France, Germany, Italy. United Kingdom, United States. So the United Nations is is labeling this replacement migration. It doesn't seem a big leap from replacement migration to the Great Replacement. Um, yeah, but again, you know, I think uh, white people, Westerners, are being very disingenuous with themselves because uh, that's almost what they kind of really want themselves. You know, because what they don't want, I mean, especially white women, white women don't want to be told they have to get married at 20 and then uh, to some some guy they're not particularly keen on and then pump out, uh, you know, three to four kids. You know, they this is not what uh, white people themselves want. And some, you know, white men would would probably, you know, look at that idea and think, actually, that's quite an attractive scenario. Uh, and for a lot of guys, it might, uh, you know, it might make them think they'll have a chance with getting a, a wife that way. You know, if you return to a um, 
um, much more traditional society, which we used to have uh, pre-1960s, uh, when women tended to be much more dependent upon uh, finding a husband and so on. And uh, there were all these options about delaying um, childbirth and following careers and, you know, the, the, the usual feminist claptrap. You know, so uh, this is actually what a lot of white societies want, though. They want this low fertility kind of lifestyle where they have uh, a lot of options, where they can try different things, where they don't have too many responsibilities, where they're, they're not bogged down in the reproductive process, where they can have careers, they can travel the world. And it's not just women that are doing this, of course, it's also men. Um, and so this is, you are going to, uh, when when people when societies reach this point where they can offer all that kind of individual freedom to their citizens, then the inevitable inevitable result of that is uh, low fertility societies, and the the inv inevitable result of that is, of course, you know you're going to have some kind of replacement migration, or you're going to have um, a crash in population that is incredibly overburdened with uh, the older demographics. Richard Spencer tweets, the anonymous free-for-all internet has contributed nothing to discourse or society and has become a public health and national security catastrophe. It's past time to shut it down. What do you think? Um, I'd say it's a, it's a slight overreaction there from Richard, you know, um, yeah, he, he's essentially an elitist, um, but the, the kind of um, ironic point is that, um, you know, of course, he's never going to be invited into the elites. Um, now, I, I think um, there there are certain valid criticisms to be made of the, uh, it, you know, this, this uh, open internet. And, of course, the internet's a lot less open than it was um, when, you know, Richard Spencer started to make his mark and... Uh, of course, he's part of the reason why the Internet is not as open as it used to be. But, of course, the Internet has been subverted, this open Internet. And uh, there's been a lot of talk about you know, how the Russians have used a lot of uh, disinformation for their own agendas. They're very interested in um, making the West as divided as possible. Uh, this this young guy who, who uh, shot these black, mainly black people in Buffalo, uh, he in his in his manifesto he uh, admits to to being radicalized by the Daily Stormer. Uh, there is uh, quite a bit of evidence that the Daily Stormer is uh, supported by uh, the Russians in various ways. So yeah, the Russians are actually using things like this to um, create divisions in uh, societies that they see as rivals and enemies. And to me, it's not at all clear that the anonymous free-for-all internet has done more harm than good. What's your perspective? Well, the thing is, it's done a lot of harm and it's done a lot of good. And there's more harm and there's more good. But, uh, you know, like, um, it's very hard to say, to, to make a, a, a comprehensive judgment until you see the end result of anything, you know. so. I think people are, um, they're much less willing to accept authority. And that might be a problem, you know. Um, it, 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 on the one hand, 
being willing to question authority can be a good thing, but it can also be a bad thing. And um, so it makes it it makes it much more difficult for society to um, operate in a cohesive cohesive way. And you know, there's no. I think the the real problem. The real problem that the West has probably is uh, not evil elites, but a lack of elites. We don't really have elites that uh, that we can actually trust. Um, I mean, there are people who are in positions of authority, uh, but they're not really in positions of authority. They, they tend to uh, give the masses what they want. Our political elites are kind of uh, subservient to to what the masses want and that's that's why you see all these kind of uh, otherwise quite inexplicable things happening there's no real leadership in our society but then has an alternative to those uh, you know official elites there is there is no other rising elite that uh, is leading the way I mean, maybe a few years ago, people thought, okay, the alt, uh, the alt right is uh, rising up. It's got some important things to say. There's some interesting people uh, in the movement. This might be the start of a new elite that's going to show the way to dealing with these long-term, uh, you know, kind of systemic problems that our civilization has. But that elite completely discredited itself as well. You see, so uh, we're, we're in this kind of. Um, elite vacuum at the moment and our elites just do what's going to get them re-elected or what's going to sell you describe yourself as a populist um not entirely comfortable with the term to be honest uh first of all uh my content like yours is not particularly popular um um so I, I guess we're we're the um, we're the the worst of both worlds, really. <laughs> yeah, because I I don't see myself as either populist nor anti-populist. I, I think just as often the populists are right as they are wrong. I don't see the elites as inherently wrong or bad or out to get us. I think sometimes uh, they're you know opposed to what I see as good, and sometimes they they further it. So I, I consider myself at midpoint between populist and and elitist what about you would you lean more to one side or the other i'm a bit suspicious of populism because i've i'm sort of very very aware of how uh, people's limited intelligence can be easily hacked by quite stupid and moronic um ideas and viewpoints And how about vis-a-vis -vis democracy? Do you think the, the Western world, its established democracies could benefit from more democracy or less democracy? What do you think? Well, I think they have probably, yeah, I mean, one of the, one of the critiques that the uh, alt-right or the distant right or even the conservative movement uh, these days makes is that, uh, you know, we don't have any democracy and the election was stolen and i kind of disagree with that i think that we 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 actually do have democracy i think our our so-called official elites who are not really elites because they're, they're, there's nothing really elite about them but these official elites are 
desperately trying to give us what we want, which in West, you know, developed Western societies is, you know, um, consumerism, economic growth and opportunities, and uh, lots of individual freedom to fuck up our our um, our own lives and that of societies. And uh, what do you think about what looks like the fall of Nick Fuentes? Well, I, I just think, um, you know, Nick is gay and, you know, he's in some sort of weird um, twilight zone of denial. And uh, he knows he's gay, but he's, you know, he's kind of living this kind of very, very warped um, sort of existence now. I, I just think he's got to get the butt sex part out of the way. Once he's once he get, once he actually goes the whole way and you know does it completely, then he can just um, you know re, rebrand himself as as a you know happily gay man. I mean, it just strikes me uh, he's a bit like uh, Morrissey in the early years when he was trying to um, you know avoid being gay, and he was just saying he was. Uh, asexual and he wasn't really interested in sex and he preferred a, a cup of tea or was that boy george i don't, I don't remember but anyway yeah the thing the point i'm making is that um you know a lot of gay people are not happy being gay and i can understand why that is you know because uh, if, if anybody being gay there's a lot of uh, uh, horrible mechanics and plumbing that uh, is involved obviously and he doesn't want to go the whole hog but you know this is the thing that's uh, preying on his mind and making him into this very warped and twisted character i feel and uh, it's it's starting to infect his movement it's starting to infect the positions he takes up it's led him to promote this whole kind of incel kind of culture all this um very very fake trad catholicism which obviously nobody in america first really believes in and uh, so the whole thing is just becoming completely fake and, uh, you know, to 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 uh, use this word in its other sense, gay. Now, uh, Richard would strongly uh, decry nationalism and, and also populism because uh, I think he, he believes in, in rule by arist aristocrats. Uh, what's your own reaction to nationalism? To me, nationalism's a, a primal force and the most powerful uh, political force in the world over the past uh, 200 years and so i certainly think people should should come to terms with it and uh and not i, I don't think there's there's any uh more useful force than than people looking out for their own extended group but what, what are your general thoughts on nationalism yeah i think nationalism is a, a good thing i mean um I was just talking earlier about, uh, you know, people should be opposed to racial replacement because it's a, a simple existential question. Uh, if you're being replaced, if you, uh, that's you going out of existence as a group. So why wouldn't you want to stay in existence? Nationalism is a, is a political creed that's designed to uh, protect that uh, collective uh, I, uh, existence. And so I think it's a good thing. It, it uh, probably makes societies more cohesive if everybody's kind of on the same page about a lot, a lot of things. 
once you have a multicultural society with uh, too many groups and agendas and ways of thinking about the most basic things, you're creating a lot of uh, confusion and you're creating essentially very low trust societies. And um, so I think nationalism is definitely a good thing. Of course, in the European context, nationalism can create certain problems, as we've seen in the 20th century with various kinds of uh, you know, um, conflicts between various nations leading to uh, quite serious wars. Uh, so it's not um, it's not without its problems, nationalism. But I think um, the positives tend to outweigh the negatives. So as I was trying to figure out what I was thinking regarding this Buffalo shooting, I was listening to a video where John Mearsheimer was talking about the war in Ukraine. And he made the point that for many years, Ukrainians and Russians regarded themselves as blood brothers. And and then I started to think about wider European ties that, uh, that you know, obviously the, the French and the German and the English are all white and they, they killed each other in the millions. So does this fractiousness within the race point to shortcomings with things like white nationalism? Well, I think... Um... The trouble that uh, European nations have is that, uh, you know, European nations just tend to be very good at uh, fighting wars. And, uh, you know, in most cases that you, you tend to fight with the countries nearest to you. And uh, that's, I mean, the, the good thing about the British um, is that uh, we always exported our wars far and wide. Uh, which generally meant we won them quite easily without much bloodshed, and uh, we reaped many of the benefits of our victories. Um, the trouble with the French and the Germans and uh, a few other um, European groups is that they ended up uh, getting locked into these, um, you know, centuries-long conflicts that basically went nowhere and, you know, culled the brightest and the best from the gene pool. And we're seeing a, you know, a, a kind of um, revisiting of that, uh, you know, sterile path in the uh, Russian-Ukrainian war. So I, I often enjoy talking to people under twenty-five. I find them entertaining. I, I find them new sources of uh, perspectives on life. But it would never occur to me to look for political wisdom from anyone under age twenty-five. Am I robbing myself of a whole wealth of uh, rich, you know, intellectuals by taking this prejudicial attitude? Yeah, for sure. Yeah, obviously. Yeah. Um, no, I mean, I, I was uh, I was reading the uh, the Shooters Manifesto. You know, I had a you know, quick look at it. I didn't read everything. I just like skimmed through it. And you know this is this is something that's written by a bright kid. I mean, he's not he's not an idiot. This guy, he's quite intelligent. Um, but like a lot of young intelligent uh, guys, you know, he thinks he knows everything. There's a you know there's there's a certain kind of conceit and arrogance of youth, and and it's just uh, so clear he's been taken taken for a ride by this um, kind of alt-right bullshit that's kind of hacked his brain. And this seems to be a problem with young guys, um, especially bright young guys. I mean, Nick, Nick Fuentes is a very bright young guy, but this is, this is the problem. If you're a bright young guy, 
you think these uh, these old farts don't know anything and you're much brighter and better than, than them. And why should you listen to these old fogies and so on? And that's a very natural thing when you're a, a, a bright teenage kid. Uh, one advantage of, of going to university is that you you quickly learn how much you don't know and you will be, be shot down by people often who know far more than you do. And so I think that that's a weakness with the autodidact, that there are many advantages with the, the self-taught, the autodidact, that they may have new and innovative perspectives on things. But I notice this with many of the young streamers like, like a Nick Fuentes or a, a Ken Brown, a.k.a. Deep Left Jerkal, that uh, they really have no sense of, of the limits of their own learning, just to amplify on, on your point. Have you spent any time with uh, Deep Left Jerkal, a.k.a. Ken, Ken Brown? Well, you sometimes post them on your show, and then I'll I'll listen to that for a for a bit. Um, generally, I find his content a bit boring. Sometimes slightly interesting. Um, yeah, I don't really listen too much to what he's got to say. Um, I listen to Nick Fuentes sometimes because you know he is quite an entertaining speaker. As long as you're uh, you're not in a position where you're actually taking him too seriously. Um, and also, it's it's kind of interesting to see how successful streamers talk. And, you know, there's certain people who are very good at doing live streams and um, they they sound witty. They sound like they know what they're talking about. And they seem to um, have a knack of kind of circling around a few talking points that they they've um, they've got something uh, of impact to say. And it gives the illusion that they know a lot more than they actually do. And there's nobody really ch challenging them or fact checking them and so on. So they can get away with quite a lot. And so some naive young kid listening to somebody like Nick Fuentes is going to be kind of swept up and think that this guy knows what he's talking about. And then he starts talking about, you know, somebody's dumper. And then maybe then they, they might get a twinkle and that actually Nick's not uh, that all-knowing. Yeah, it, it seems like the most successful uh, talk radio hosts and live streamers essentially use a, a top 40 formula where they just kind of repeat the hits over and over and over again. Uh, freedom or, you know, our people or... What, whatever the bits are, that they just keep hitting these buttons over and over again to give people the kind of feeling that they get when they listen to the hits. Do you think that's a apt analogy? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's definitely the case. They, they, they have their talking points and they kind of relentlessly circle those talking points. And they, after a while, if you're um, kind of quite high intelligence, you start to uh, realize they're not really going anywhere. And they're just, um, you know, regurgitating constantly. And what are your thoughts about what's happening in Ukraine? And what are the possibilities of this war going nuclear? Um, yeah, it's, it's, it's uh, again, I mean, like all, everything depends on Putin. Uh, he's he's the one thing holding it all together, and so it all depends on uh, first of all you know his health, 
And secondly, uh, you know, what the people around him decide to do. And uh, there's a lot of people hoping in the West that, uh, you know, somebody will come along and bump him, bump him off and then we'll all go back to be nice and friendly again. Um, you know, that would be nice if that happened. Uh, but again, you know, the Russians might uh, be prepared to go quite far down the same road with Putin. And, uh, you know, I think uh, Russia is, uh, you know, there's, there's a kind of um, interesting paradox uh, with Russia because, you know, as it's become more aggressive, it's become more uh, kind of isolated, treated more like a pariah state. But um, it, this has also pushed up the price of its, uh, of its main export, which is, uh, of course, oil and gas. And so it's actually increased its revenues by this uh, very, very anti-social action. Um, and so there's certain um, in, inbuilt strengths to that. But at the same time, the, the, the pressure to um, kind of isolate and, and uh, cut Russia out of the global system uh, is constantly growing. And um, it's hard to really see how this plays out. It is quite a complex thing. Um, so I, I, I think, um, you know, we could be in for quite a long haul unless, you know, some, something happens to Putin. What do you think of the chances for a religious revival in first world industrialized nations? Mm, I don't think... Um, advanced societies uh, generate sincere religious movements. Yeah, because as the world becomes increasingly rationalized, economized, and uh, you know, science and uh, education and uh, more efficient ways of doing things increasingly comes to the fore, the, the magic and mystery that was key to the religious worldview there seems to be less and less room for it so if we if in all likelihood that there seems no rational basis to believe there's going to be a religious revival in the west uh where do you think people will turn for comfort because we have an increasingly seemingly dislocated world where the traditional comforts afforded by religion are no longer taken up by by people and so where do you think people will turn for comfort well, I think we're seeing this in, you know, people are increasingly living in this, some sort of uh, kind of hyper reality, some kind of, uh, you know, fake reality. Uh, you know, they're, they're, li they're, they're living in a kind of meme world almost. And, um, or they are practically inside a computer game, a lot of them. And so what's happening now is there's something very, very complex and weird happening, which um, we can't really talk about it accurately using the, uh, the, the kind of tools of our present day language. I mean, there's something that uh, has to be analyzed at a much higher level, but there is definitely something weird going on. It's not religious. It's not uh, rational. It's uh, beyond reason and uh, and um, it, it's, it's beyond ra rational and irrational. And there's some sort of, there's a kind of hyper-rational world developing. How good are virtual friends? So right now I'm doing a live stream and 
there are a bunch of familiar faces in the chat having a, a lively conversation with each other, a type of conversation that these people I would expect can't really get in real life. And I know for myself, when I was basically bedridden for six years in my 20s, uh, virtual friends sustained me, that I would, I would be sustained by phone calls, by letters, by exchanging uh, cassette tapes with, with uh, friends and acquaintances all over the world. And, and I know that the virtual friends played, played a huge role in, in my life when I was particularly isolated. What do you think about the idea of virtual friends? Well, I think it's um, very much a phenomenon of the age. People are, um, you know, much more involved with their virtual friends. Um, they're, uh, they're sort of like online groups. Uh, they're, they're kind of, um, yeah, it's a bit like um, what uh, Zuckerberg is, is pushing with, uh, with meta, this meta world, you know, where people are, where, where people become their avatars and, uh, people kind of um, associate online through avatars and images they project off themselves, and so everything becomes this kind of hyper reality. So uh, that's that's one of the forces driving this escape from uh, you know conventional traditional reality. But but is it is it a good thing? Is it is it a bad thing? I, I'm not convinced it's it's a bad thing. Obviously, face to face friendship and, and human con conduct is, is contact is best. But I know I've met many of my virtual friends in real life, sometimes on multiple occasions, and it hasn't actually added that much to the friendship. Like if if I were to meet with you and we had coffee and we went for a walk. Uh, I'm not sure that, like, say, three hours we, we might spend together would really add that much to to our friendship. So what do you think about virtual friends as far as the, the efficacy or, or the use of them? Do you think that they tend to be good? Do you think they tend to be bad? Do you, do you have any thoughts on, on the good or bad of virtual friends? Um, I think uh, amongst intelligent people, uh, who you know know what's what and don't take things too f far, and don't believe too much of their own bullshit. Uh, they can probably you know navigate that kind of uh, world without um, becoming too deluded or too puffed up on uh, you know illusions and bullshit. Uh, but a lot of people maybe they'll encounter some kind of uh, problem at some stage. I mean, you'll see these um, OnlyFans people who fall in love with some girl on the internet and pay her lots of money and simp like mad for her. And, you know, there's all sorts of weird things that uh, come out of this. Um, so you do actually have to be quite a grounded person to be ungrounded, if you know what I mean. Yeah, so I, I think what you're saying is for two-thirds of people who are relatively normal, uh, having virtual friends only adds to your life. But for the one-third of people who aren't normal and who don't really have many real-life friends, it's uh, much easier to go in a deranged direction relying on virtual friends and community. Mm, yeah, yeah. I mean, everything... Uh can be taken too far and uh, with some people it can be taken too far a lot sooner than with others 
and same with video gaming i i think for for two-thirds of people who play video games that it doesn't really have a negative effect on them it's those for whom their life is otherwise empty that uh video games provides the one form of excitement and passion in their life and then it becomes maladaptive so having an hour or two of recreation i don't see inherently why playing video games for an hour or two a day is you know a bad choice compared to say watching tv but for for a minority of the population that it can then you know lead you down a deranged path any thoughts on video games um yeah yeah i think um you know it's just it's just common sense really you know um if you use something in moderation and it helps you to unwind a little bit and then you get get on with the rest of your life and yeah fine but uh you know what if it's like alcohol you know if you a drink now and then that's that's fine but uh you know if you're living inside a bottle then you've got problems so it's just uh, the same with everything you know everything in moderation what role do you think video games might play in violence because if, if you're playing a video game where you're shooting people uh, do, do you think it's possible that that kind of unlocks a hinge in some people's mind that enables them to go into the real world and and kind of act it out? You you kind of see that in some of the such as the live stream of the the Christchurch mosque uh, shooter. It, it kind of felt like you're watching a video game, and so that argument is not ridiculous to me. I, I don't know how much empirical evidence there is for it, but the idea that for some people playing video games where you're shooting people it may unlock a hinge in your mind that then enables you to take that attitude into the real world. Yeah, I don't have anything particularly uh, profound to say about that. I'd say there's probably some truth in that. Um, some people might, um, you know, it might, have a, it might have a cathartic effect on other people, you know, it might help them to, to not do it, you know. So uh, nothing, nothing of real profundity to say to that. Anyway, Luke, that's enough. Uh, you know, enough of your curveballs for tonight. So I've got to, I've got to be going now. So thanks, thanks, good. Colin. Great to talk to it's you. It's been fun talking to you as usual. Cheers, okay. cheers, mate. Cheers. Okay, let's uh, go back to the shooter's manifesto. So he says, "Sedum uh, do not consider the judicial system applicable to themselves." Well, if they're charged and arrested, they they soon see the judicial system as applicable to themselves, but. In my charm schools for Hasidim, we'll talk about the, the legal system and how it applies to you. Uh, they are private courts that have served to hide criminals, including even child molesters in their community. Yes, a group's private courts can serve to hide criminals, including child molesters, but they can also serve to bring justice. So I just uh, rewatched the Godfather movies. So in some senses, the Godfather would bring justice that the the secular courts would not. So... I don't think there's anything inherently bad or good about Sharia courts, Jewish law courts, uh, Godfather justice. Once a seedim achieve a certain presence in a town or city neighborhood, they buy up buildings that force long-term residents out. They ignore building codes and zoning to bring in co-religionists with large families and create enclaves that are hostile to outsiders. Well, I, I don't think that's something that's uh, unique to Hasidim. So there are certainly some Hasidim who do some of this and then plenty of other Hasidim who abide by the law of the land. For example, it's one of the key teachings of the Talmud that the law of the land is law to the Jew. And so 
you know, Jews don't tend to go around with, you know, committing massive amounts of, uh, of crime, right? You, know, you don't exactly fear for your life walking through a Jewish neighborhood. But uh, charm scores for Hasidim. You can get in now. Investment opportunities. I think this is going to be huge. All right. Richard Spencer, May 13, did a podcast in defense of Nick Fuentes, sort of. He talks about the irony of optics. What we have at the heart of this episode is uh, a broken friendship between Jaden and Nick Fuentes. And I think that in itself is a big problem. The fact that these movements really are based on friendship and personal loyalty, uh, not necessarily ideological loyalty, but personal loyalty. And I saw a lot of this when I was involved with the alt-right many years ago, where people would you know, tell me someone's name as if I knew about them or cared about them. You know, I mean, I'm just making. I think this is inherent in all movements. Most people are not going to be terribly, you know, philosophically, ontologically coherent, right? So I think what Richard is decrying here is the human condition. The human condition is to place friends and community and family at the very forefront of your thinking, right? It's not natural to place you know, an invisible, unknowable God at the forefront of your thinking. It's not normal, natural, and even healthy for most people to place ideological concerns at the forefront of your thinking. Right? Most people put their family, their community, and their friends at the forefront of their thinking, and that's healthy. So what Richard is decrying here, I think, is in large part healthy, that you put your friends and your family first, and that you see the world in terms of your family and friends and your your nation really is an extended family. King up a name, but it's like, well, did, did you see what White Eagle said on Twitter? You know, oh, we, we, we can't lose him. This is, you know, it's this weird kind of thing of who is this person? Is this person the proverbial incel basement dweller? Is this person? And uh, Hop Galician is not a fan of looking at the killer's uh, manifesto. He says his actions render any of his thoughts, however cogent they may seem, in isolation, craven and insane. He was remotely serious about issues of not hate and sinister anti-social violence is self-sacrifice like immolation of Buddhist monks. You don't commit a heinous murder of innocence and get a dissection of your worldview. He is necessarily mentally ill and psychopathic. Well, even if he is mentally ill and psychopathic, uh, that doesn't mean it's not worth paying some attention to what he's saying. Like Osama bin Laden gave very clear reasons for why he committed 9-11, and I think it's worth studying those. Uh, one of them the most prominent was that American forces went on the holy land of Saudi Arabia in the first Gulf War. Uh, second thing that he objected to was the United States support for Israel. So he had three main objections. Those are the two that come to mind. And so to understand Osama bin Laden and his mission to create a some kind of wider Arab caliphate, I think it, it's helpful to read his writings. So I don't think you automatically dismiss people on, on the dismiss their arguments and dismiss paying any attention to their arguments because they go out and commit heinous crimes. So I think it's worth understanding why Al Qaeda and uh, Osama bin Laden acted as they did. I think it's worth dissecting Mein Kampf and understanding why why Hitler acted as he did. It's worth dissecting the writings of Joseph Stalin to understand why he acted the way he did. So that doesn't mean that you look at these writings uncritically. Right? I believe you should look at all writings critically, meaning. Who wrote them? For whom did he write? What was his audience? You know, what was the context for, for what he's, he's saying? And so with these white rage manifestos, they're, they're 
seem to be usually written in the language of 4chan. So in the manifesto, they proudly claim, oh, I'm a white supremacist, but that's, that's really 4chan irony trolling, right? So there's a lot of irony trolling in these, these manifestos. So when you rip these manifestos out of the context of 4chan speech, out of its literary genre, then they don't make sense. You have to understand all writings within their genre. You don't read an electricity bill the same way you read a love letter. And you don't read a love letter the same way you read a, you know, a synagogue bulletin. Right? You don't speak the same way inside a synagogue or a church or a mosque as you do in a bar. So often the architecture of where you're speaking, the place where you're speaking, is going to have far more effect on your words and behavior than any other factor, including your personality. So I'm all for the, the, the literary and critical analysis of the manifestos of, of people who commit heinous crimes. It doesn't mean that you take them at face value. It doesn't mean that you accept uh, everything that they're saying is you know, their literal truth because some people use a genre of irony, such as these 4chan shooters. Person insightful, or does he just tweet a lot? Does he just lurk on your Discord server and has gained clout or credibility that way? Um, why do we care about this person? And I don't want this to sound too snobby or harsh, but... And uh, we got Matt, who's doing his PhD at the London School of Economics. He says, Luke, quick question, was a shooter a neo-Nazi anti-Semitic conspiracy theorist? Yeah, you would say that, but you can't just dismiss people as, as buffoons, right, or as demons, right? He was a human being who was reacting to real-world situations, and he was intelligent, and you, you read some of his arguments, and you can understand where he's coming from, then, then other parts of his arguments uh, seem non-factual, absurd, and uh, bogus conspiracy theorizing. So people are complicated. It's, it's, I don't think you can just dismiss him as an anti-Semitic conspiracy theorist. There are a lot of facts, a lot of uncomfortable facts in, in his manifesto. There are a lot of uncomfortable logical arguments in his manifesto. There are also a lot of ridiculous uh, nonsense and, and just irony trawling in his manifesto. So people are complicated. You know, I remember seeing a poster, kind of digital poster for the AFPAC event, which gathered that entire movement. And I'll talk about that movement a little bit. And you had these figures on there. So there, there was Nicholas Fuentes, I of course recognized, the Red Elephants guy, Michelle Malkin, and Cassandra Fairbanks, and you know, a couple of the people who I knew of as either conservatives or alt-light grifters or whatever. Um, and then you had these characters, <laughs> Jared Taylor and Peter Brimelow, who were at the bottom getting... Uh, build below, you know, like Jason video or, you know, Mike cliffs or some, you know, gamer John or whatever. It, it was just bizarre. And just building a movement based on, you know, Oh, this guy's so based and he does live streams that that just is stupid. And, uh, I, I mean, it's stupid in general, but I, I don't think it can actually ever go anywhere. There's no real reason for anyone to care about any of these people or respond. And a question in the chat, how does terrorism flow from right-wing ideology? Well, terrorism can flow from any ideology if the ideology presents the situation as catastrophic, that, that your protected group is being overwhelmed by dastardly outsiders and makes a case that you know somebody should be acting to wake people up to this, this vast threat that is is engulfing us so it's not inherent to right wing or to left wing or to religious ideology but you you create an ideology that says essentially that the end times are here 
that your protected uh, people are under threat and the situation is dire and somebody needs to step up and you know will you be that man to step up then you you provide fertile ground for people like john brown who set off the 1860 civil war the people in israel who fought against the the british and the arabs to create the jewish state i don't know any modern jewish states uh, any modern states that were not formed in large part through violence right and you get this kind of activity when you increase in-group identity so a lot of great things come along with increasing the strength of your in-group identity people are more willing to sacrifice for each other they are more willing to identify with each other they usually feel happier because they feel that connection with fellow members there in group but along with that always comes increasingly negative attitudes towards out groups and increasingly dire sentiments about the, the tremendous threat that the out group poses to your in group so there are many downsides to having no in group identity right it tends to rob meaning purpose happiness uh, strength from your life it tends to leave you enervated but there are also downsides from from strong identifying with your in group so to effectively identify with your in group but not go nuts with it it helps to have the ability to step outside of the dance all right there are many mysteries that are only known to those in the dance of your in group but then it helps to be able to step outside the dance in your mind and consider how is what we're doing how is what we're thinking how is what we're saying how would that reflect to out group members who who are seeing and hearing this so i i've been around members of in groups who you know shout out a, a lot of epithets against out groups and uh, that could be overheard by members of out groups and obviously that's insane and incredibly self destructive back to them outside of they're based and they're in our clique and again, I, I think that was endemic to the alt-right. I think it was super endemic to the AF movement, which did grow out of it. Grow, it grew out of the alt-right, of course, but I think it um, probably was more accurately. Could so half Galatian thinks knowledge is bad. Half Galatian thinks that uh, curiosity about how people work, that that's bad. So half Galatian says that, you know, I'm increasingly absurd in my analysis. This guy's a loser with no education. I don't think that's true that he has no education he's he's uh highly intelligent you know way above average iq uh fairly well read and uh, half galatian says this guy's a loser with no education or ability to discern and a willingness to end his own life in a cartoonish evil and ineffective act of census violence on a market well pretty much any nation state has been achieved by people willing to commit cartoonish evil and violence the guy was dark, wanted a cover to achieve something in his empty life, and Luke thinks that's interesting. I think knowledge is good, right? You think knowledge is bad, that it's stupid to want to understand what's going on. It's stupid to uh, try to understand the world around us. I think understanding the world around us is a good thing. I think knowledge is good. I mean, that's my bias. Doesn't mean that having knowledge of what uh, bad people do means that we morally justify it, right? You're not letting someone off the hook by understanding why someone acts as they do. And even if someone has a mental illness, that doesn't mean that every thought that they have is delusional, right? Why do people have the type of delusional thoughts that they have? Like what are the, what are the true ways in their thinking 
that, that take them from a normal life to acting out this way. Be more accurately described as post-alt-right in the sense that um, you can't underestimate how young some of these people are. I mean, I think some of these people were, you know, 13 years old when Trump announced that he was running for president in 2015. Or, you know, they barely remember events like Charlottesville. Maybe even some of them came in after January 6th or something like that. I don't know. But you have a lot of young people with very short memories. So I, I think the fact that you have this, you know, mo friendship nationalism, this movement based on clout within a clique is a huge problem. Now, yeah, sure, to a degree, all movements are like that. But to embrace it to this extent... Yes, all movements are like that. Friendship is the most natural, normal, and healthy thing on Earth. Right? What is normal, natural, and good often just appalls Richard, who is so far above what is normal, natural, and good that, that uh, he looks down on things like friendship. It's interesting with the Richard Spencer, Nick Fuentes, uh, Ken, Ken Brown, that these are people who don't seem to have much room in their life for, for friends, community, family, uh, things like that, that, that most people put at the very center of their lives. Dent is asking for trouble. It's just not going to work. It will end up almost invariably due to human nature and personal jealousy and so on, just like this, of people claiming, you know, oh, Nick budges his numbers. And Half Galician says, I love knowledge. I just don't think you'll find it in a psych ward. Actually, I think you'll find it in a psych ward, right? There's there are a lot of interesting studies about people in psych wards and how they interact and how they learn to give the people in authority what they want to hear. And uh, mental health and, and the mentally ill is a bewildering problem that, that we're, we're not getting close to to making significant progress on. So yeah, I think there are things to be learned from psychos and from psych wards. And uh, I just love learning. Luke, what do you think about uh, gun control? I don't have uh, strong opinions. Generally speaking, I'm, I'm in, in broad agreement with the Second Amendment. I do also think that there needs to be limits. Doesn't mean you should get to own a, a tank or you know, you know anti-aircraft weaponry. Uh, you know, there shouldn't just be unlimited, you know, unlimited uh, weaponry available to people. And History Speaks says, be critical of Israel or you want. I am, but anti-Semitic conspiracy theories are ridiculous. Monica Lewinsky is white. Harrison Ford is white. Well, most Jews identify as white, but blood brothers can, can change very quickly, right? Russians and Ukrainians were blood brothers until they weren't. So... Here's, uh, here's John Mish on there. Final comments I, from John and then from Stephen. Yeah, I just want to build on what Roddick said that I wrote in 1993. I was probably the only person in the West who said that Ukraine should not give up its nuclear arsenal. And my argument was because someday the Russians may threaten to invade Ukraine and Ukraine should have nuclear weapons. The vast majority of people in the West and many Ukrainians said at the time that Ukrainians and Russians are basically blood brothers and blood sisters, and that's inconceivable. And therefore, John Mearsheimer's views are out of touch with reality. In a way, Mike, people were arguing at the time views similar to what Putin said in his July 12, 2021 article. Anyway, we took away their nuclear weapons. 
Then we encouraged them to join NATO. We said no, they were we going to join NATO. Them. We, in effect, poked the Russian bear in the eye, and we left them defenseless. No, we, wait. in effect... So I think that, that analysis is comparable to gun control. For nations to survive, they need to be as strong as possible. The stronger you are, the more likely you are to survive. Uh, so too with individuals, you want to be as strong as possible financially, communally, in terms of friendship, sometimes in terms of, of weaponry, right? The, the world is a dangerous place. We're all locked in an iron cage together, and there's often no effective higher authority who's going to sort things out. We have to work out our disputes within an iron cage. Uh, John Smith said Australia had to pull off a major false flag to confiscate its citizens' guns. I think that's analysis, that, that the Port, Port Arthur shootings were a false flag. Last thing we need is for citizens to make decisions about governing themselves. We have experts for that. <laughs> Luke, do you see a parallel between shooting random civilians and violence in pursuit of realistic statehood? Well, there are parallels and there are differences so just because one sees parallels between two things does not mean that there aren't also very many significant differences so one can see parallels between all sorts of different uh, national nationalist inspired acts of what we'd call terrorism so there are some similarities between these nationalist inspired acts of terrorism and there are a lot of significant differences as well so to point out differences doesn't mean that we should deny the similarities and to point out some similarities doesn't mean that we should deny the significant differences. Again, maybe true, maybe not. I don't know. Uh, some horrible <laughs> anecdote about looking for uh, ejaculate on a couch with a black light. I, I mean, it's so specific. It seems it probably is true, but I, I don't know. And I don't care. It's silly gossip. But it's just going to end in this kind of shabby, petty rivalry, jealousy stuff. Um, what's interesting, and and you know, from what I've read, Nick has confirmed this, the source of the breakup was the fact that Jaden seems to not be an incel. <laughs> and he had a girlfriend and therefore wasn't dedicating his life solely to Nick. I mean, I find that rather sad. Uh, and uh, I think so. It's not unknown that uh, two male friends can be split up because one male friend starts spending more time with a woman. Right? This is fairly common. Uh, jealousy over our friends right? Maybe our friend doesn't spend as much time with us as we'd like or doesn't give us the same priority uh, is, is also part of the human condition. Someone, you know, someone like Jaden should be applauded for having a GF and having a life. And I, I get the impression that he probably does want to have a life and will probably leave this whole scene and uh, be the better for it. Um, but that incel thing, I, I think that is getting at something very important. I would just say this. I, and I was joking with a friend of mine about this. I find it exceedingly difficult to believe that Nick Fuentes is an actual incel in the sense that he's not having sex. The reason why I believe that is that when you have any sort of celebrity, it is an absolute aphrodisiac. I don't find it hard to believe that Nick Fuentes isn't having sex. So I think Richard is just coming from his own experience, but uh, realize that for some people, sex is you know, a frightening thing. Even if, maybe you could even say especially if, but even if that celebrity is a kind of negative celebrity of being the bad boy. So I can speak to this from personal experience. I won't go into details, but basically a bunch of girls are throwing themselves at you. So 
the idea that and Nick, I, I think Nick achieved less like mainstream media fame than I did because I, you know, spoke to the media at every opportunity and was kind of played in played into their kind of oh, this is Spencer, the well dressed boogeyman kind of persona. Um, Nick had much more intense celebrity within the movement, much more than I did, much more intense loyalty. Um, I, I just, I can't believe that someone like that isn't getting laid. <laughs> um, now, you know, there's always been questions about Nick's sexual. So if I speak of Richard, Richard Spencer, I am frequently saying far more about myself than I am about Richard Spencer. And so too with Richard Spencer, when he talks about Nick Fuentes, he's frequently saying far more about himself than he is about Nick. And I think those previous two minutes of Richard's analysis was saying far more about him than about Nick. Quality. When he did this Catboy cami thing a few years ago, I forgot if it's 2018 or 2019. Yeah, I mean, it raises some eyebrows. And as I said at the time, I mean, look, I don't care about that movement. I, I'm not connected with it. I look upon it objectively in the sense I'm, I'm outside of it. I don't have any dog in that race. But yikes. I mean, what could Nick have possibly tried to achieve? So it, it's not just so much that it was a mistake or something like that, because everyone makes mistakes. And, you know, um, politicians flail around and then have miraculous comebacks. Athletes have lows and then highs. So I, I don't care about mistakes uh, or misjudgments or something. Like, the question is, can you learn from it? And do you have the ability to kind of make a comeback? Or do you have, is there something about you that's worthwhile? But it's just the oddness of the mistake. It's, it's like, what are you possibly trying to achieve by that? And it, yeah, it was creepy uh, to put it mildly. I don't think it's that odd to people who really in it for the attention and don't really have much of an ideological intellectual foundation for what they're doing, you know, got together to create more attention for them. So I think that explains right there, the Nick Fuentes, uh, Catboy, Cami hookup. So what can be learned from these mass shootings as Steve Saylor's law of mass shootings which uh, claims that when there are far more wounded than dead in a mass shooting, the shooter is most likely black, and that when there are far more dead than wounded, the shooter is most likely white or Asian. And then there's Ann Coulter's law. The longer we go without being told the race of the shooters, the less likely it is to be white men. So, for example, with this shooting in Buffalo, very quickly we were told that it was a, a white man who had committed it. Now, at the same time, You've got a New York Times article, 1,350 words on the various NBA playoff shootings in Milwaukee last night. There is zero mention of the race of any of the shooters or the victims. So 17 wounded in downtown Milwaukee shooting, no fatalities, uh, absolutely no mention of race. I think maybe one of the funniest things about it I remember is it wasn't so much that the, the pair, Nick and Catboy Cammy, were um, looking at, at each other uh, adoringly, but um, I think on that video, Nick denied the existence of dinosaurs or something like this, you know. So uh, the science types say that religious people are wacky, but then these crazy scientists claim that giant lizards walked the earth. I mean, who's the religious fanatic now? Yeah, that type of argument. That's amusing. <laughs> but yeah, I, I, I generally think that either Nick is gay or that and a question in the chat why doesn't australia have these kind of shootings well australia is a primarily homogeneous nation and doesn't have the intensity of the cultural and political conflicts the united states has so when you watch the news in australia it tends to overwhelmingly be pretty boring and 
culture wars rage at about 10% of the intensity of culture wars in America. So Australians are primarily about having a beer, going to the beach, making a barbie, ha- having a gamble on some sporting event, watching some telly, uh, you know, indulging in their hobbies. You know, Australians tend to work very hard at their hobbies, often not so hard at their real jobs. It's the best place in the world to be an average bloke. And most Australians feel that the government is on their side. So the United States of America is a nation state built around commitment to freedom. It came out of the first British Enlightenment. Australia and New Zealand came out of the second Enlightenment in Britain. And this is the attitude that people are basically good and that fairness is the most important quality. So Australia is far more regulated than America. It has less freedom. It has a lot more fairness. Thus, the best place in the world to be an average bloke. He has a very screwed up sexuality that, that's actually understandable in terms of his age and the movement that he's in. Um, it's an isolation, alienation from women and all of the horrors of the internet. These are very online people. All of the horrors of the internet are at their fingertips. It, it leads to a kind of screwed up sexuality and it leads to these weird statements like it's gay to have sex with women or, you know, uh, incel, inceldom is the ultimate form of manliness. And- so Sydney, according to one survey, is the fourth safest city in the world. And you kind of forget what it's like to be in a safe place if you you live in a less safe place like Los Angeles or New York or Chicago or San Francisco. So I was recently back in Sydney for two months and it was idyllic that you could walk anywhere, anytime. You could uh, leave your phone, your laptop on the beach and go swimming and it'd still be there half an hour later when, when you come back. There was just no sense of menace. I don't think I heard a car horn once in the two months that I was in Australia. I only once heard a siren when when a kid was taking a selfie by a cliff and he he fell off and and died. That that was the only time I heard a siren. I remember living in Orlando and there were just constant sirens and helicopters overhead and the police swarming by. So we forget how much we sacrifice because of crime, like all the precautions, how much we limit our lives, how much we pull back from the public space, how much we may pull back from volunteering, how much we pull back from exploring the wider world, how much we pull back from our fellow citizens due to fear of crime and we lead more insular lives, uh, watch more TV, spend, spend more time online and, and to just walk around in Australia with zero sense of menace was an amazing experience. And you know, I would rather have sex with a tranny than a woman. All, all this just weird nonsense that's extremely creepy, but I think speaks to the predicament of a lot of Zoomers like Nick. They, you know, maybe calling, maybe suspecting that they're gay is the wrong way to look at it. Maybe the better way to look at it is they are just immensely sexually screwed up and frustrated. That's probably what the case is. Um, but the, the incel thing was very important to him. I mean, the, the, the inceldom was the source of the friendship breakup. And I think this gets to... I think, you know, inceldom, and Nick isn't technically, literally an incel. Incel means involuntarily celibate, and uh, Nick would have no problem finding sexual partners if he, if he wanted that. Uh, if if Nick is, is choosing not to have sex, given his public persona, it would seem to be involuntary, just like I don't eat meat. I've gone through my whole life as a vegetarian, and I think it's really unhealthy. I think I should be eating meat. I think I should be eating fish. 
I am not willing to do the hard work of, of crossing that barrier of, you know, forcing myself to eat meat, to eat fish, you know, risking throwing up, having some kind of violent reaction because I've never ingested fish or meat in my life. I'm not willing to do the hard work to get over the conditioning I received growing up as a Seventh-day Adventist vegetarian. And so to someone who's developed phobias about intimacy, then the more you give into those phobias, the more powerful they become. And so I think this celibacy that Richard is decrying, it, it may not be, be chosen by many of these people, but it increasingly takes on a life of its own. A larger issue, which is worth discussing. And that is the playing to his fan base. So, you know, someone like myself, I don't get accused of being a grifter in the sense of I just tell my audience what they want to hear. So let's, let's take a step back. Let's define grifter. Now, you could apply that label, grifter, to almost any... Richard, for years, told the audience what it wanted to hear. All right? He loved going into rooms and having everyone greet him with a Heil Hitler salute. Right? When Richard gave this infamous rant after Charlottesville, where, where he just went off, you think he was telling his audience what they wanted to hear? Yeah, of course he was telling his audience what they, they wanted to hear. Like a fucking hundred times. I am so mad. I am so fucking mad at these people. They don't do this to fucking me. We're going to fucking ritualistically humiliate them. I am coming back here every fucking weekend if I have to. Like this is never over. I win. They fucking lose. That's how the world fucking works. Little fucking kites. They get ruled by people like me. Little fucking oxaroons. I fucking, my ancestors, fucking enslaved those pieces of fucking shit. We're gonna win. I rule the fucking world. Those pieces of shit <laughs> get ruled by people like me. They look up and see a face like mine looking down at them. That's how the fucking world works. We are going to destroy this fucking... Okay, so there, Richard Spencer is giving his audience what they want, right? So, so this notion that he, he never gives his audience what they want, he gave his audience what they want for as long as he could stomach doing it, for as long as that was successful for him. When that ceased to be a winning formula for him, he, he was willing to cross his audience. So this is uh, Richard I will Turkey. make no bones about it. I, I truly despise the Turks. I absolutely would support a unified European effort to take back that near Asia entirely. And whatever happens to the Turks, I don't give a shit. I don't care about them. They're ugly and just appalling people who have no culture. I visited Turkey. I had been there and I was just, I began to just despise those people. Uh, we have this beautiful, like Hagia Sophia and so on, it's imprisoned with these this is disgusting mosque, just this, this repulsive religion of Islam. I just, you know, it is a appalling place. It is an occupied territory. We should just take it from them. I don't give a flying fuck about the destiny of the Turkish people. We should rip Constantinople, entire Near Asia from them. We should throw every Turk into the ocean. I do not care about them. We should reestablish Byzantium. That is the 
absolute crown jewel of our civilization. That is just as important as Rome. That is just as important as Germany. That is just as important as France, London. That is our land. The white race should unify. I will only be satisfied. I will only know that the white race is back, that we are once again a powerful people when we unify and take back all of Eurasia. When I just think about the fact that Turks are you know, occupying that land, that they have surrounded one of the great monuments of our civilization with these stupid minarets and there's all this shit, it just makes me entirely angry. Okay, so Richard was quite willing to go into the gutter and, and to give his audience what it wanted. And he continued to do that for years until it stopped working for him. So he, like all of us, has some, some you know, blind spots. This is Richard calling Nick Winters. Wow. If I ever fucking see you, you better watch it. I am serious. Is that a threat? Is that a- so this is this is audio here of uh, very angry Richard Spencer going up against uh, Nick Fuentes. from this psychotic behavior i say yes it's worth it's worth studying this So the reason that those those clips are important is not because they they show an unexpected or unprecedented side of Richard Spencer that they flow logically from his whole worldview. 
I mean, no one who has any knowledge of Richard Spencer would be surprised by any of these, you know, rants, right? To, to a normie who knows nothing about Richard Spencer, yeah, that's that's kind of shocking. But when you see how it just kind of fits in with this whole worldview, not so shocking. Like a- Whoops, I, I don't want that one. I want this one. I love life. No. Those of you who think that this rampage is a good thing, you love death. You want to die. You want people like you to die. You want some huge burning spectacle because inside, your insides are like a big burning fire. So you love death. I love life. That's the difference between us. You want to destroy. You want to tear down. You want to shit all over places that you disagree with. You want to defecate. You want to vomit. You want to go out in blazing glory. You want to break the law. You want people to ruin their lives. Because at core, you love death. I love life. I love the rule of law. You want to destroy the law. You want to shed all over this country. I want to protect and clean up this country. That's the difference between us. You want to take a shit on the United States of America. At your core, that's who you are. That's what you want to do. You are full of shit. You want to take a shit on this country. You love death. You glorify death. Five people died. Five innocent people died from this rampage. And you think it's great? What kind of person thinks the death of five innocent people is a good thing? A person who is insanely in love with death. Okay, so people reveal themselves when they get angry. And I guess I was pretty steamed there. And so I reveal to you my my true self. Do black lives matter to you? Do black lives matter to you? Do black lives matter, right, Karen? Fucking white piece of shit, you little fucking cussy ass bitch! Oh, yeah, you wanna fucking go, Karen? No! No! Until Black Lives Matter! Until Black Lives Matter, no life matters! Black, white, yellow. That is not our fight! Until Black Lives means something to this country! No. No. Okay, let's get back to sober analysis here from Richard. Political person, public intellectual, political entrepreneur, etc. You could just say, oh, they're a grifter. They're taking donations on Patreon. They've got, they're on a sub stack. They're on whatever. And you could say, oh, they're just a grifter. Well, I think that's an extremely unfair way of describing someone. Um, you know, I mean, where does the definition of grifter end? Is a journalist for the New York Times or BuzzFeed, are they grifters exactly? I mean, because they're getting a paycheck to write about politics and talk about politics? I don't think so. Um, I would define grifter in the sense of someone who cultivates an audience and delivers them comfort food for money. So someone like, and and these people can be intelligent, they can be unintelligent. Someone like Caitlin Bennett, she does publicity stunts, she tweets about Catholicism or family values or whatever, but her main asset is the fact that she kind of looks like a, a, the daughter or housewife that you would want. Maybe not my cup of tea, but she has an audience. And so she'll tweet about her cooking. Like, oh, look, I'm such a good housewife. I just made this chicken dinner for my hubby. And it's a way of allowing, or I'm, I'm going to wear a bikini and carry a semi-automatic weapon around, you know, a kind of new version of a chick with a dick, I guess. <laughs> um, she, it, it's titillating. It offers a kind of parasocial relationship with her audience where her audience can, in a way, be married to her or have Caitlin Bennett as the audience's collective daughter. So it's very similar to OnlyFans. OnlyFans is not 
really about porn because porn, as we know, is ubiquitous on the internet. The, and 99.9% of people don't pay for porn. They get it for free. And yeah, there, you know, there's some sites that have paywalls or something like that, but where you, you know, you pay $9 a month or whatever to get, I don't know, high definition or whatever, but the vast, vast majority of people just get it ever. It's ubiquitous. It's ever churning. It's ever being churned out, et cetera. But what is it about OnlyFans? That relationship that the Mark can have with his OnlyFan model is the feature, not the bug. That's what it's about. It's about that fantasy of being married to her. And so we shouldn't really be surprised when a sizable proportion of OnlyFans, not only do they pay $9 a month, but they'll just... Okay, but why do people pay for this, right? It's because there's an emptiness in, in their life. I had you know, a virtual friendship with Dennis Prager. I would call into his show regularly. He, he once called me at home. I would send him letters. He would send me letters back. It was a very dark period of my life where I was isolated, living in isolated part of uh, Newcastle, California, out in the country. You know, not many people around me who shared my interests in Judaism and ethical monotheism. And that virtual friendship was enormously sustaining. Right? That, that, that connection with, with my hero, you know, this virtual connection, uh, gave me strength to, to get through some very dark years. So I, I see many positive sides to virtual friends as long as your friends are influencing you for the good. So by my developing this veneration for Dennis Prager, it didn't tend to have many negative effects on my life. It tended to have a positive effect on my life. So if your virtual friends are influencing you for the good, then I think virtual friends are great. Now, I don't know how many OnlyFans models are you know, creating virtuous friendships. Send this girl $1,000 on PayPal. And I'm, I'm sure there's some male models who have very similar parasocial relationships with their female fans or male fans. So it's that simulation of an actual relationship, a familial relationship or a love relationship. That's the secret sauce. That's what makes OnlyFans work. And I think in that sense, the kind of grifter is very much like an OnlyFans model. Although this grifter is not, you know, showing us his genitals, um, but is telling the audience what it wants to hear and offering that kind of parasocial relationship, comfort food. A lot of grifters can be intelligent and can, you know, legitimate, legitimately put forth discourse that's a contribution. I'm thinking of Blaine Greenwald. He is a journalist. He is a good writer, highly prolific. But let's be honest. What is his secret sauce? Who is his audience at this point? His audience are conservatives who want to hear about how liberals suck so hard. They're terrible. The GOP is the true working man's anti-war party, anti-state party, whatever. They want to hear that from this gay journalist who's been lionized and was involved in the Snowden leaks. So he, although Glenn Greenwald is a intelligent guy, of course, the, the reason why he's lost a lot of respect is just that he doesn't, he's offering comfort food. He's offering a narrative that makes his audience feel warm and fuzzy inside for profit and a lot of profit. I wish I had his, his subscriber base, obviously. So Nick was like that in the sense that he recognized the youth inherent in the alt-right of 2017, certainly inherent in the AF or Groyper movement, and he played to them. And so even if Nick was just banging chicks left and right and, you know, the Swedish became... And it's not like Richard was not playing to his audience too. Like Richard played to his audience for as long as he could get away with it. When he, when he lost that connection, then he went in a different direction. Teeny team was visiting his house every weekend. <laughs> Even if that were the case, I think he would have desperately tried to hide that because he had to present himself as an incel for his audience. And his audience did not so much see him as a leader 
because a leader is someone who's by his nature egotistical and is going to order people around and lead them. They saw him as a kind of emblem of themselves, as their avatar, as the, the ultimate young incel Zoomer who is representing them. And again, that was an absolutely successful model. He understood his audience. He catered to them. He represented them. And they were very loyal to him, at least for a time. It lasted a lot longer than I thought it would last. But I, I don't think Nick is going away. But I, I do think that any time there's a kind of like crack in the ice, it's almost a matter of time before it comes caving in. Now, I... That's also true for, for most YouTube personalities, all right? They, they usually don't even have a five-year shelf life. They, they have shelf life about as long as porn stars. They may get hot for a few weeks. So, so JF Garapi was hot during the first few months of 2018. Then never ever recaptured that magic. Very few live streamers do. I first learned about Nick. I can remember this back in 2017. And he was a young conservative. He was in high school, or not in high school. I think he had just gone to university at the time. He's a freshman in 2017. And he was the kind of like ultimate person that we were trying to reach or like, and maybe that was, a, I look back at it now, I think it was mistaken to try to reach those people, but he was kind of the ultimate person that the alt-right was trying to reach. Oh, here's the disaffected conservative normie who is, has rejected conservatism and is now on the Trump train and loves the alt-right and is edgy on social media and, you know, so on. Um, I remember seeing an interview with him on Stefan Molyneux's show and just hearing about them, hearing about him. And he got connected with James Alsop. And so Alsop was a very similar figure. Someone who didn't really present himself as an ideologue, but as a kind of conservative normie who now is a nationalist and all that kind of stuff. And I, I, I did know that he went to Charlottesville. I never saw him at Charlottesville. I mean, I was only with a very small amount of people in Charlottesville. But he went there. Um, and I can remember the fall and winter of 2017 post-Charlottesville. And, you know, immediately after that event, there was a tremendous amount of enthusiasm related to the fact that we felt like victims at that event. So it was... We were mistreated by the police. We weren't allowed to speak. We had a permitted rally, blah, blah, blah. And there was a lot of enthusiasm and kind of team building, you could say. But very, very quickly, all of that started to fall apart. And the alt-right went into these series of spasms, mostly led by people like Nick or Andrew Anglin or Weave, that were basically trying to find a scapegoat or trying to attack some part of this very broad movement and attack it and kill it. And, and I think kill it like a scapegoat. It is putting the sense of the community or, or whatever onto something and pushing the scapegoat out into the desert to die. First, there was the anti-e-girl war um, that was this massive attack on any female in the movement that was you know, led by Anglin and company, also led by uh, people like Roosh. Um, I'm, you know, I'm sure Nick took part in that. I mean, Nick has been famous, has famous Okay, so uh, Richard and Ed Dutton are talking about the Buffalo shooter. Let's see if they have anything interesting to say. That's kind of hypocritical and unfair. Okay, but I would prefer a rule like that. Come on, guys. Let's try it again. Printing presses. Or, or when, they, when they brought in talking. 
you know, suddenly you got monkeys that could remember when we couldn't talk, saying, oh, I've got all the stuff we're discussing now. We couldn't discuss those things before. We couldn't discuss the filthy stuff. We just used to make noises about food and, 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 and the bodily functions. And now we're just talking. Um, so it, it, it seems to be every, every movement away from the simplistic is, has got potential to make things work. Talking, perhaps that's an extreme case. But certainly. <laughs> I, don't, I don't think the non-conscious or linguistic monkeys thought to themselves. There must Damn. have been a generation of humans that was less loca than the previous generation. True, I agree. And that generation must have thought to itself, God, all this talking going on. Well, actually, they, they were hearing the voice of their God, of God coming that's, into that's, their right side of their bicameral no, that's, that's, that's not because Julian James is correct. He's wrong, wrong about that, because if that was the case, then, as I said, that we've got Bushmen, people that are one generation removed from being Bushmen, and they are just normal people. So I, I'm not... I'm well, not we, we, I actually would love to get in a discussion with you about this, but we'll, we'll just table it. I'm more sympathetic towards well, that during your lesson. Well, i a discussion with Julian James's main, um, main student, who's an old man mm -hmm. who's still alive, but he's just not up for coming and doing the discussion. Well, look, I've, I've read the book, so we'll, we can do it ourselves, and I, I'll represent his um, side on this okay. matter, but I'm much more convinced of this. I think at the very least, it's just extremely thought-provoking and, and so bold that it, it you know, spurs on a, a, a consciousness of all sorts of different yeah, things. Yeah, but if, so we, I, if we plan that in for next week, then next week Kamala Harris will announce that she's pregnant or something, and it's just going to... I'll be able to work it in. It'll be like the by-Kamala mind. Pregnant, pregnant by Joe Biden, and it'll just be <laughs> something else to talk about. And so... We'll, we'll, we'll... Okay. All right, let's get back on track. Let's get back on track. So, look, I agree with you that, you know, if conservatism has any wisdom, it's that things just keep getting worse, and that you know, there, there is a there's a great virtue of, of, of simplicity and so on. But I, I would say that while that's true, and I have sympath sympathy towards that view, it really is about making serious judgments. And just because some we have shrill liberals talking about, you know, oh, Tucker Carlson caused this, uh, which is a bit outlandish, maybe has a kernel of truth here and there, um, or that, you know, we, we shouldn't, we should never allow the publication of Ed Dutton or something, just because they have people like, and uh, Tucker Carlson's made, made, a, a point that he, he says white supremacy is a hoax. And and I understand where he's coming from, but it's difficult to stand on that ground when all these shooters announce themselves in their manifestos that they're white supremacists, which they're meaning it in an ironic, joking, uh, 4chan kind of way. But wh when it then gets translated into the sober news articles, you see, oh my God, there's this whole wave of you know white supremacist terrorism. That somewhere doesn't mean that we can't talk about making serious decisions. And first off, I, I would just say a, a couple of things. Yeah, this just unbelievably toxic components of the internet, um, particularly pornography. I've always been in favor of banning porn. Um, I think the British law of um, you have to, uh, if you're an adult, you could maybe pay for porn if you want to. So it's kind of like a little thing that you, you get in limitation, kind of like a little vice, like you have a sniff of cocaine at a party, but you're not a, just a full-on drug addict who's lying in a gutter. I, I can deal with some kind of compromise, but it's just to recognize how insanely toxic the internet is and the degree to which these platforms are preying upon vulnerable people and these platforms can easily be manipulated by bad actors who understand the kind of political consequences of getting Sally in Nebraska obsessed with QAnon and then wanting to go and invade the Capitol or something like that. So, I mean, I, I think this is a really serious issue. Even if we, I mean, I get it how a lot of people feel like, oh, we're totally out of power, so we need to just be full free speech absolutist or whatever. Well, I've never thought that way. I, I think that you should, you know, you should always dress for the job you want, not the job you have. Like, you should always talk about things in a serious manner. What would I do if I actually did have the power to enact my agenda? And absolutely, we, we have to, like, there is a tremendous amount of the internet that deserves to be censored immediately. And that is, has no value. That is just pure toxicity. Um, another thing that's an issue, I suppose, as well, is that people that are white and young have been inculcated to feel bad because they're white. And so if you have low self-esteem, one thing that can just about give you self-esteem is to be a groupie, is to be yeah. a, a groupie of a good, high-status, powerful group. Uh, which is something I think that this uh, Poynton, Paynton person has attempted to achieve by being a kind of groupie of spree-killing Nazis uh, and then becoming one.
that uh, if so if you feel that you're part in the 50s or 40s as a white young man you felt that you were part of the best people in the world that's what you felt you really felt that because they were right. completely in power in america they were 90 percent of the population there was no question they were in charge and uh, and so that would militate against such um, such behavior patterns whereas now of course they they feel quite the opposite and they have been uh, brainwashed people his age i dread to think what it must be like being at school his age uh, to, feel, to feel rubbish to, 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 to this new um, anti-mental uh, uh, health thoughts of being told that you're crap all the time and that you're crap because you're white and you're crap because you're male so you're double rubbish uh, and you're crap because you're straight so you're 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 rubbish in all of these ways and so um you have to get some sort of sense of self-esteem somewhere so there's all kinds of people that are to blame it's not just the internet it's the internet plus this broader culture that has developed um uh, because of it or alongside it or as a corollary right. to it. And mainstream conservative and well, I shouldn't say mainstream conservative, <clears throat> but the Tucker Carlson type of, you know, we can call them paleocons or the the hard right or whatever you want to call them, that it doesn't offer any kind of validation or moralization. It basically does kind of reemphasize well, how how should I put this? It's, it's maybe the other side of the coin of the left, which is obviously demoralizing and just attacking, you know, white people for their identity. Sure. In the sense that, you know, Tucker Carlson, all these people are so excited about him when he's like, you know, we're just being the uh, traditional Americans are just being replaced by Hispanics, by the Democrats. It's all this big conspiracy and it's all purely about numbers and they hate you and they're going to take you out. Well, I find that kind of talk, even if it might have a lot of validity. I get it. I don't think I don't think the Democrats secretly created immigration to win political point. Well, they opened it. Opened. They, they they in 1965 they they were not. No, they, they're not. Maybe they think of it now post the act, but in 1965 the um, immigration is still largely white. And whether that was supporting Democrats, it, it becomes a difficult thing you have to prove. Now there are some later. I, I think there was a, a British politician who was like, we want to rub the right's nose in it by bringing in diversity. Andrew Nether. Andrew Nether has no more. Right. I get it. I get it. But let's let's table that just for the moment. Um, uh, when, when your reaction to this is just we're being replaced, it, it is a tremendously demoralizing vision. Now, it might be worthwhile to talk about this issue of demographics and demographic decline, which is according even a different, a separate issue. But to offer no vision outside of like whining about being replaced, I think is demoralizing and, and does. It, what one has to ask, like, if this is just simply a numbers game, then why don't. Come on, guys. Oh, man. Let's get back to recorded Richard, his May 13th podcast on Nick Fuentes. Famously talked about, you know, no e-girls ever kind of thing. And they did that for a little while. And then that seemed to bizarrely morph into an optics campaign. So it went from being wildly misogynistic to we're the best, uh, we have the best optics. And what did the optics mean? It, 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 like all kind of scams or lines of attack, it was based on truth. It was, it was based on a, on a truth of, you know, there are these low IQ Wignats out there. So Wignat is um, Uyghur nationalist. Um, you know, I, and I think they kind of pinpointed Matthew Heimbach or something like or Matt Parrott or something as the object of ridicule. Although I was considered a Wignat, um, certainly. I think for my views, I don't know. I, they, sometimes I'm a Wignat, sometimes I'm a liberal, sometimes I'm a federal. Look, the irony of the optics obsession was because the reality of the movement was so bad, mainly because of decisions that Richard took. So in 2016, Steve Bennett, the guy who ran Donald Trump's campaign, announced that Breitbart was the voice of the alt-right. So Breitbart-type conservatives were happy with the term alt-right, but Richard wanted to shake them off 
only wanted you know people who were comfortable who found national socialism hilarious only wanted those people identifying as alt-right he didn't want he didn't want to be successful and so richard deliberately crashed the brand by invoking hail trump hail our people hail victory and then continuing on with with toxic behavior such as the charlottesville rant so richard drove anyone with anything to lose out of the alt-right richard created a movement that uh, decent people had to flee so you had breitbart the whole you know millions and millions of americans who were comfortable with the alt-right label until richard deliberately toxified it by invoking how wonderful national socialism is and then you were left with a movement that was about one-third gay one-third felons you know, one third dress up Nazis. They do all sorts of contradictory attacks on me. But anyway, um, so it was, we need to, those Wignats are the ones ruining the movement. So we can't have these helmeted rallies in public. We need to be conservatives because the conservatives are moving towards us and we need to kind of move towards them. And I think, again, I think there's actually a lot of truth to that claim. Obviously, I think you should look good and look presentable and so on. Um, yeah, but the optics fight was came out of the fact that Richard had completely toxified the movement, so decent people wanted nothing to do with it. And the the depressing fact for movement supporters was that it was overwhelmingly poor-quality people who were attracted to it, just like white nationalism 1.0, 2.0 had, had crashed because it was overwhelmingly poor-quality people who'd been attracted to it. So it ended up, through Richard's interventions, recreating the low-quality movement that uh, white nationalism has always been in the United States. This then you stayed up for uh, the whole game. Show. Yeah, I was up. Yeah, I was a tweeting and uh, you know, watching the game and the celebration. Racist Buffalo man. You're versus... also watching a video from Buffalo. Buffalo yes, yes, I watched a wonderful. Up. This one's this one's uh, getting um, some popularity. It's some guy from uh, a part of Buffalo, I guess. What is it, South Buffalo? Yeah. That. Uh, uh, it's commenting on a story. I gather there was some kind of fire. Um, it seems to me, without knowing the entire story, that uh, black people wanted to move into his neighborhood. Okay. And something burned. <laughs> I don't know what it was. Wow, they burned a house down? And now they got this news guy interviewing Wait, wait, wait. why are you gentleman. being vague? I don't know. What did they burn down? I honestly don't know. I just oh, know there was a fire. It could have been anything. Did they burn his house down? No, no. black guy's house down? I don't know. I got it. I, I didn't get enough info on the story itself. Okay, but this kid gentleman is talking to the, a news guy, um, and he's his opinion is that blacks should stay where they are and uh, whites stay where they are, and if they don't uh, cross paths um, in their neighborhoods, that uh, shit like this won't happen. He says. Oh, I see him. And the uh, newscaster is is worse than what this guy is saying. And by the way, this guy. Let's uh, listen to yeah. this. Uh, so tell me, you lived here for thirty something years. Uh, they're classifying this fire is a potential hate crime. What do you think about that? I think that if people just stayed in their own side of town, their own neighborhood, that things like that wouldn't happen. Tell me what you mean by that. Well, every race and color has their own section of Buffalo almost, so if they just stay on their own side, things like this wouldn't happen. People in these neighborhoods don't want those type of people moving down here and ruining the property value and destroying the neighborhood. So when things like that happen, it shouldn't be such a shock. What do you mean by those types of people? Uh, minorities. African Americans. So are you suggesting that <laughs> they should stay on the east side yeah, rather than coming here said. to South Buffalo? Well, they've already wrecked the east side. Why should they come down to the south side and wreck that neighborhood? Do you think Can you that pause real quick? By this saying guy, these... This guy 
This guy's uh, a calm guy, this racist, yeah, yeah. but you can see his face. He's a problem. Hell yeah, oh, he's yeah, a problem. Yeah. He's, he may or may not be a firebug. <laughs> he's, he's a problem. He's wearing a wife beater, a black wife beater, and he looks like he he looks like he could absolutely be in an ultimate fighting ring. Is this a young reporter, though? This isn't oh, like TV young. news. This sounds like a local. Oh, it's Buffalo. It's Channel 4. Yeah, but so, what are they going to get up in Buffalo? Uh, yeah, that's, that's a, true. A fresh-faced oh, okay. kid out of college, out of broadcasting uh, school. Just going, ha, ha, I'm not, I'm not, I don't know how to handle this guy. <laughs> I know. He He's might beat me up. saying the things I, I'm supposed to be trying to get out of him. He's never right. heard anything like that. You, no. Usually you only get implications. Well, yep. two parts of town. What do you mean by that? But he's like, no, no, they should stay there. The minorities don't come. I got to say, I like this guy's honesty. Yep. I appreciate his honesty. This guy has a, a feeling about something, an opinion. Uh, he lives in a neighborhood that he doesn't want destroyed. He's got an opinion of other neighborhoods, right, wrong, or indifferent. And... Uh, He's speaking his piece. He's not afraid. I like that. This is why I love Anthony. And I mean, love. Because Anthony said I admire his honesty. Not, you know what? He's a racist and an ass, and he's just telling the truth. It's, it's, I like his honesty. And then you validate his points. And, well, you know, property value does go down. gets excited when he sees people like himself. Oh, I like this. <laughs> like, see, I'm not alone. That's good. With my thoughts. Is that YouTube or a mirror? <laughs> he's yeah. in really good shape. It's a YouTube. Oh, okay. <laughs> this, this guy couldn't be more confident about what he's saying. Oh, yeah. He's, he's, just, looking at, he's like... All right, what else you got? He loves it. Go back slightly there, uh, Sam, please. Let's continue with the clip from Buffalo. I'm going to sell side and wreck that neighborhood. Do you think that by saying these things, people on the other side of the city get offended? Do you think that there's some sort of a, uh, a bias, potentially? A lot of people feel this way. They just won't say it. But you are. Yeah. Why are you, why are you coming out and saying these things? Because I own a home and I see what happens when they move into the neighborhood. Property value goes down, kids on the corner, crime goes up. The east side used to be a beautiful place. Look what they did to that. Do you think that there's an issue, though, in what you're saying? Well, I'm sure there is, but <laughs> I mean, you got to take a look at why it's an issue. What do you mean by that? I mean, they just ruin neighborhoods. Uh, I guess what I'm getting at is that you're... Gen- <laughs> This guy's this guy, he totally threw this guy. He's so <laughs> scary, though. You see the look he gave? Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, but this guy's not used to having an honest discussion and unapologetic. Right. I, I mean, uh, I, uh, because the guy's going through their own neighborhoods, and it's like he's telling you how he feels. It's unpleasant, but I, he's not being uh, dirty. Or he's, no. And he's not, he's not expounding enough for the reporter, because the reporter keeps having to jump in. Yes. The guy is just a soft-spoken guy. Just, this is and he says it, and then he's quiet. He's not going off on this diatribe about, uh, you know, and, and uh, using a racist language or anything. He just speaks his mind, stops, and the reporter's got to keep asking stuff. He doesn't know what the fuck to ask. He's never talked to a guy like this. No. Amazing. Go back a little so we can hear him go. I, I, I. <laughs> uh, I guess what I'm getting at is that you're generalizing tremendously. These people might have just been here looking for a different way of life, a better way of life. Maybe people are afraid what, if you let one family in, then they more of them come in. <laughs> I remember I was covering the 1986 election for K-High Radio. And I was hanging out at uh, election headquarters, I think, in Auburn, California. And someone, some old guy in his 70s who was very politically astute was talking about how, how different ethnic groups vote. And he, he was giving a, a quite detailed analysis, and, and I assume it was pretty accurate. And I was so naive, and, and as a, a reporter, you know, so careful to stay on the side of, of the good and the powerful, I said, are you being a little racist there? I said that, 1986. I was, I was 20 years old. You know, that's just how it is around her. Right. Do you think there's anything wrong with what you're saying? I don't feel there's anything wrong with it. A lot of people would feel wrong about it, but I don't. 
<laughs> that guy is he, amazing, isn't he? he? Rules. <laughs> he's, and he's a big, like, motherfucker with one boy. of those heads that you know you could punch right in the face and he wouldn't go anywhere. For anyone who wants a visual, if, if you've seen Once Were Warriors, he looks like Jake the Must. <laughs> really? He looks like Jake, uh, yeah, the, the lead for Once Were Warriors mm. in the face. And uh, he has this way to raising his eyebrows. Like, he's confrontational, yeah. but softly. Like, he's comfortable yeah. telling you. Exactly. This. He's one of those guys you could punch as hard as you could right in the jaw, and he'd do that thing where he just takes his finger, wipes the blood, <laughs> looks at it, and just smiles at you. Like, that's all you got? Yeah. All right. My turn. It's on the Facebook page, E-Rock. Yes. All right. All this visual shit. Go to our Facebook page. Okay. Let's get something from Leonard Cohen. He's been in, in this country, in Belgium. Yeah, it's been a long time since I've given a concert here. Maybe 150 years. So, this town was barely built. You know, it's just moving from the medieval to the Renaissance period. I was here. I was singing. It's nice to be back. Do you know uh, Ghent? Do you know Flanders? Intimately. I know Ghent and Flanders. I speak fluent Flemish. I'm a great partisan of the whole area. I'm familiar with your history, your restorations, your uh, dilemmas, your anxieties, your aspirations. I'm uh, quite aware of... Uh, I'm, just, I'm, I'm just about aware of everything there is. Everywhere. Well, this is a festival for tolerance and democracy against racism, yeah. uh, it's called. Are you against uh, racism? Uh, not... Entirely. You know, I, I don't think that uh, we should uh, completely abandon the notions of who we are. In fact, I think that if we deeply study who we are, uh, we will feel a lot better about who everybody else is. You encounter racism only when people forget who they are and forget the deep wisdom of their own people. So when things begin to break up and people uh, embrace a superficial wisdom of who they are, then they become very anxious about who the others are. No, a real racism is a deep understanding of who we are, and a, a, a great race affirms all other races. A great culture affirms all other cultures. A great religion affirms all other religions. A great country affirms all other countries. The value of tolerance of uh, cultural, cultural diversity in a society, do you think uh, it's possible that people of different, different ethnic origins are living together? It's possible. It's difficult. It is our challenge. It is the specific challenge that we in the West have because of our diverse populations. It is our particular cross. It is our burden. It is what we must do. It is the most vital challenge that confronts us. And if we don't have the energy to confront this challenge in ourselves and in our society, then we're really screwed up. Belgium is a country with uh, different nationalities. Canada too. Canada too. Okay, let's get more here from uh, Richard and Ed on the Buffalo Shore. Uh, found themselves being invaded. So what Britain has to do next year is get itself invaded as well as producing the objectively best song, and then the public vote will uh, swing it for them. But uh, this year the public vote overwhelmingly skewed the results because it's half the jury, half the professional juries and half the about the vote. Eurovision uh, and uh, Ukraine, of course, won. But people online are saying that Finland will probably win next year because it would have been invaded by them. So that's something Oh, well, Finland, I welcome NATO comrade Ed. Forgot to tell you. Finland yeah. only got 11 points last night and they were way down mm. the table. But if they'd been being invaded, then obviously they would be they would be topping it. Mm -hmm. Well, it's less likely that you're going to be invaded now that you're in NATO. So was were the songs actually good? I didn't watch I the Eurovision. Thought, I personally, I thought the best song was by uh, Emma Muscat of Malta. Mm -hmm. And that didn't even get through to the final because they have these semi-finals because there's so many countries involved now. Mm. And then the second best song, in my view, was by Sweden. That did get through. Uh, and that came did it approach the levels of sublimity of Abba's Waterloo, which was a Euro well, song, <clears throat> all sorts of ways? Oh, he's he's a poor incel. 
He is, um, you know, a right wing extremist. We can talk about these things. Gun control is always in the mix of these. But it actually eventually landed on the Confederate flag issue. And that was the spark that created the, the, the bonfire of the flags effectively across the South. That if, if after about five or six days, it was, this is what this is about. This is about removing Confederate flags from state houses, you know, because they caused this. I think that this shooting might very well become a censorship, free speech, unfettered internet issue. And the reason is this. Um, I, like you, we both got a hold of his manifesto, which he posted online. There's no inherent reason this needs to be a we need more censorship result. Right? It depends what people in power uh, do. He posted on 4chan among, you know, countless uh insane and scatological material that appears on that website is this um, manifesto. Now, a few things. Obviously, when someone engages in a despicable act like this, that mental illness should be brought up. Uh, this person is, is not well. There's something went profoundly wrong in his life for him to engage in such an action. That being said, um, when you when reading the manifesto, you do not get the impression that it's one of these things like from the movie Seven or something. It's this you know scribbles, cryptic, written in weird languages and numbers on a notepad. This man's mind is just fragmented and scattered. No, the manifesto read uh, like copy pasta. As they a copy pasta, as they say, copy and paste from many different right wing websites. Some of them being dissident right or alt right. Some of them being four channy. There's there's a Sam Hyde meme that he included in there, but some of them being pretty mainstream. Um, the Great Replacement concept, which was promoted by this fellow, uh, is has gotten a lot of mainstream attention. It has been uh, reiterated in a certain variation by Tucker Carlson on Fox News. Um, it is a major meme among mainstream conservatives. Uh, it's also a major meme on 4chan. So what I'm saying is this guy is not a crazed killer whose mind is, is, is scattered and fragmented. Um, in fact, from what we can learn, if this manifesto is authentic, and it seems plausible. It seems it seems poor enough in its composition to be done by an eighteen-year-old. Yeah. Well, sure, but what I'm saying is it's not just totally crazy nonsense. He's kind of copying and pasting fairly mainstream right-wing talking points, and and there's some other kind of silly stuff thrown in as well, just things that are just objectively wrong. But on the whole. It is a fairly mainstream manifesto. He's, he's also calling upon Brenton, Brendan Tarrant, of I believe his name, who was the Christchurch killer, who did a very similar action in a mosque um, a few years ago. I think it was 2019, maybe, um, of basically planning, going in, going after soft targets with a high-powered weapon, and then giving oneself up to the police. Um, so 
before we start talking about some bigger issues, what what is your impression of the event, and and maybe what's your impression of the the manifesto? So, uh, uh, well, of the of the manifesto, I, that's what I've been uh, thinking about. So, you, this guy Peyton Gendron, whatever it's pronounced, um, he. I noted that he says that when he was younger, he was a communist, and now he's a fascist. So that is Congress with this general psychological type where you like or you like order, you like a clear sense of self, a clear sense of identity, and you're only attracted to that if you're on some level are deficient in a sense of identity and are not sure who you are, and so you need to grab onto something, uh, something that you see as substantial and making sense of your world. So he's, a, you know, this is a dangerous ex-communist who also, by the way, cited a number of times the extremely left-wing website Wikipedia. So maybe they should look about oh, Wiki- looking into banning Wikipedia uh, because of the, da- <laughs> the, da- the dangers of Wikipedia. Um, secondly, I, no- I note that he idolizes these other shooters, Brevik. Uh, the right. guy you mentioned, who was the Australian that did the, the massacre in New Zealand. Terrence, I believe uh, is his name. Uh, yeah. And there's a number of other of them. So he obviously sees himself as part of that type. So that yes. strikes me as an ele- that, that there's an element of social contagion to this. That yes. people will see other people do it. People that are deficient in status, that don't have status, that feel they have no status, aren't worth anything. And if those people are kind of grandiose narcissists, who feel humiliated by the fact that they don't have status, then one way they can get status is by doing something like this. At least it makes them important. Uh, it's a kind of narcissistic rage, uh, yeah. and, and it's, it's worked for other people. So it, may, it raises an interesting question about censorship, which the left are all in favour of, which is that if you want to stop this kind of stuff, and if social contagion is relevant, which it is, then it might be worth kind of not reporting it, kind of covering it up, or certainly not making a big thing out of it, because there is, a, and, and turning these people into evil people, but evil people with status, because that right. could be attractive to a, to a certain kind of person. So I, I noticed, uh, I noticed that, and they should perhaps uh, they should think about that. Um, the way the the, the worldview that he had constructed was um, was uh, a, a worldview of the of, of a certain segment of the far right, the anti-Semitic segment. And one thing that I have noticed is that the, the, there is a lot, there is a way, a degree to which those kinds of people are in a lot of ways comparable <coughs> to those they claim to hate um, in so much as they are dogmatic and the dogmas don't fit with reality. In the case of their opponents, the dogmas are obviously multiculturalism and uh, environmental determinism and, uh, and uh, uh, white self-flagellation and whatever. But in the case of, the, um, of these people, it is a loathing of the Jews to such an extent that they can't even accept the objective fact that Ashkenazi Jews in America have an IQ of 112. They can't. No, that can't mm-hmm. be right. That itself is a Jewish conspiracy, uh, and 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 it reflected uh, that myth as well. He calls it. He actually calls it the smart Jew myth. Right. Um, I saw and, that. And so, and so, if you take away the smart Jew myth, then all you can say is just these uh, these unpleasant pictures that he posts of a person who's a Jew from doing this and, uh, and, and generally as opposed to being being mendacious um, um, and uh, so uh, that was the uh, I mean that was all my takeaway was of it really that he's a, a young guy 18 years old life isn't going well for him probably a bit uh, a bit sort of socially excluded and whatever needs to feel a sense of importance um, and it's so extreme that he does something something like this yeah let me jump in on a couple of points um, 
one thing that is a major trend, and I think this has a lot to do with Gen Z itself. I think it also has a lot to do with the internet and it has a lot to do with general polarization and maybe some other factors. And that is that when you're a young person, you're either going to be an anarcho-communist, socialist, Marxist-Leninist, or you're going to be some kind of Nazi or Southern Confederate or traditionalist Catholic. There, there seems to be no center among young people who are very online. And even putting aside polarization, there, there just seems to be this tendency through through the digital medium that you just you just gravitate to these poles. And so you'll find people like who the most famous Twitch streamer right now is named Hassan Piker. I don't know if he's the most successful. He's certainly wildly successful, but he, he may be the most famous. And he, again, there's no reason to actually believe that he is a Marxist or anything like that. He's just a standard kind of woke Democrat or whatever. But he describes himself as a socialist and a communist. I mean, you can kind of see this on the other end as well. People who will have kind of fairly mainstream ideological takes just kind of end up becoming racist. It, it's, it's, it's an interesting and maybe kind of a disturbing thing of these very mainstream kind of midwit at best people who are, who would other, in, in normal societies would not take these extreme positions, but they almost feel that they have to, or there's no other choice in online discourse. And uh, I, I think that, that in itself is, um, fairly interesting. I would, I agree that I, he, he did do the, uh, you know, deconstructing the whole notion of Ashkenazi having IIQ. I don't buy that in the slightest bit. Um, but again, what struck me about the manifesto was a, the endless discussion of guns and weaponry. So he was oh, yeah. a bit of a kind of autistic nerd obsessing with all this stuff. I mean, look at the end of the day, you're walking into a grocery store with a high-powered weapon. I mean, what are you even worried about? You could do it with a sawed-off shotgun. I'm not trying to give anyone any ideas, but there's just some bizarre quality to this person. He thinks he's like a soldier or something. I mean, no, you're engaging in a despicable and rather easy act. It's just no one the does this thing, because most I, people I, have some I, sort of decency. I, I, forgot to mention uh, was the inconsistency of what he was talking about as well so it wasn't um it wasn't even consistent he was saying oh there's this great replacement and that uh, whites are being destroyed and pushed out of their homelands or homelands they've established oh okay so let's go and kill african americans well african right. americans have been in have been in america for longer than most of the white population they've been there, they were they were taken there across a hundred year period from about 1630 to about 1730 17 <clears throat> late 19th uh, 18th century when britain shut the trade routes and a lot of americans particularly italian americans like him um have, have been there considerably less time than they have so it no doesn't question. make any sense to go and attack them well they, they've been taken to america and put there they're not immigrants <laughs> I, 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 of course, agree. Um, I, I would also add that when one's, I mean, a very mid-witted, at most, kind of conception of identitarianism or white nationalism is simply this endless talk about numbers and crime rates and 
the growth of the Hispanic population as well. And if there's no actual vision or ideology behind it, you're just doing copy pasta from 4chan or, or whatever, then what else are you really... I mean, it, it puts you in this position where it's like, what else are you doing? If you conceive of the history and destiny of the white race as basically it just numbers, like we're here, we exist, we have this IQ, we commit crime at this rate, blah, blah, blah. And now there are these other numbers coming into my, you know, land, the space that we occupy. Then there, there's something like, I obviously 99.99% of people who are into this kind of midwitted stuff don't engage in acts this despicable. Of course not. But what, what, what do you do in a way? Like if, if that's your conception of race and identitarianism or so on, then it, it almost seems, I mean, I hate to say this, but it almost seems logical just to engage in this kind of, well, I'll just pick off a dozen and then we've gained something we yes, our numbers I, I went up theirs went down I, I it's just it's a horrible way of thinking and I, I would say this even for the 99 percent of people who don't engage in anything approaching this type of action it's still a bad way of thinking another thing you said which is, is that we whites are the most intelligent people in the history of the world seeming to forget <laughs> northeast asians are more intelligent than us as well as ashkenazi jews northeast asia didn't even approach that and so there was it was a it was just basically um as is consistent with what i was saying about the psychology of him of the sort of borderline personality or uh, narcissist type with him just coming up with a post hoc ways to rationalize what he feels which is a profound loathing for um for black people uh, uh, for some reason, uh, so so he can um, come up with the justification for shooting them, uh, but, but um, yeah, in, 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 there's no there's no um, you know, the idea that this is some rational act, which is what he tries to make out uh, for the for the good of the uh, of his people, which follows uh, a number of other rational actors in a in a, in a greater series of rational acts in in Christchurch and. Uh, uh, whoever else he he cited, I didn't I didn't know a lot of the names. Um, uh, it's uh, absolute nonsense. It's just uh, it's a young ang uh, young angry. I mean, think about what it was like. Well, it was that. rational on some horrible level, well, though. Rational in that sense. Okay, in that sense of pick them off. Fine. In, 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 in it's it's like saying it's like saying uh, uh, someone saying in a coffee shop, uh, would would you like a fair trade coffee? No, no, no. I only want unfair trade coffee because I want my <laughs> coffee drinking to contribute to killing non-white people. So I, and I want to keep a record of how many unfair trade coffees I drink. I want an, indeed an <laughs> app which tells me you have now killed a non-white by via the number of unfair right. trade coffees you have consumed. It's like it's like that. Right. I want to purchase blood diamonds. Yeah, blood diamonds. Upfront and violent way. Right. Um, but I mean, I'm just thinking. I'm trying to think back. It makes me feel so terribly old. But I'm trying to think back to what what you're like at that age. You go through this period uh, when you're that age where your neuroticism level goes up and where your psychopathology level goes up for various sound evolutionary reasons that allow you to break the bond with the family. And because at that age, you would have been a soldier in prehistory for your tribe. Right. Yeah. But you go through this dip. So in that age, you are, relatively speaking, mentally unstable um, and psychopathic. Mentally unstable people, as we know, get drawn to the far left. Psychopathic type people get drawn to the uh, far right. You have relatively low self-esteem. That's part of a, a neuroticism. But in addition to that, because of the age you are, you're worried 
about life, you're worried about the future, you're, you're, you see yourself probably as, a, at least if you're relatively middle class, as a virgin surrounded by all these people having sex. Everyone seems to be having sex except you, except right. it's so taboo to not have sex that everyone, I remember when I was at university in the third year, all these people that had lost their virginity uh, during their three years at university had finally admitted that, yeah, in the first year when they'd said they'd had sex, they were lying. <laughs> you know, um, and it's 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 like that, and you're in, you're in that kind of environment, and it just you was you did some some uh, provocative tweet earlier about how oh god the internet has caused this uh, all these problems, but it has because if you because at, at that kind of age, people our age feeling like that did not have the ability to go and connect with anybody else that felt remotely like that. Um, uh, and, uh, and, and then feed off each other to feel more like that and then become part of communities where you would gain status by, as it were, forcing yourself to feel even more like that in a kind of hierarchy of feeling like that. But that's exactly the situation. Yeah, the, the, the most you have was the phone book. And there might be an extreme right-wing political party in the phone book, like the National Front or something like that. That was it. Um, um, and uh, you know, there might be in America, I don't know, an anti-abortion organization in the phone book, but that was the lot. And, and you'd be therefore surrounded by other people who were less crazy than you um, and who would and who would draw you back into uh, in, into the world of thinking straight and not wanting to go and massacre random black people for, uh, in Buffalo. Um, and that, that's the world that they're in. And so it's people who would have been reasonably all right and would have got over it and got on with their lives, like his parents, presumably. Right. Um, who, who, because of the um, the internet um, and the nature of it, um, are, are sucked into it. I can think of maybe the internet shouldn't be accessible until you're 25 years old. I, look, I totally agree. And <laughs> let me let me go on this, and then I'll I'll throw the baton back to you. Um, yeah, look, I, I can remember in my early 20s, and so I can remember in my late teens being kind of psychopathic in the sense of um, heavy drinking, you know, uh, Brett Kavanaugh style, I guess. That was a very Gen X thing. We were encouraged in a way to show your manhood by getting, you know, blackout drunk on Saturday nights and so on, and just being a just a, a kind of bad, reckless person in that sense. Um, I also went through a kind of ideological radicalization, actually, when I was in my early 20s. And I was thinking, I, I, I guess I had kind of, I mean, I didn't want to hurt anyone, but I, I definitely had kind of Ted Kaczynski-like thoughts of, of, you know, we're destroying the world, the, the ice caps are going to melt, we're just consumerist robots, you know, this is awful, we need some kind of total rejection of modernity and you know i i remember it kind of engaging in that at, at the age of i don't know 22 or something so there there is yeah i mean again i i you know i i maybe there's a little part of me that still is, is like that to a degree in, but in, in, in the year 2000 i think it was i went to the darby university hunt ball mm -hmm. and i got so drunk that i burnt a hole a small hole in the trousers of my tuxedo with a cigarette or possibly a cigar, I forget which. And I uh -huh. had to take my trousers and my tuxedo to some elderly lady in Durham the next day so she could sew the hole up. That is how wasted my tuxedo needed to be fixed. Well, you were so wasted, you didn't know what else happened with that. I, yeah, I don't remember. What, what I don't remember. <laughs> okay. But so, look, I, again, I'm being totally honest here just to, just to show some level of understanding. You're, you're an <laughs> angry young man, and I get it. 
and you've just been introduced to radical things. But I, this is the way that I would think about it is, is that question of mimesis. So that, that is, which we can relate to the word meme, that, that is imitation, if we want to think about it this way. Um, Plato uh, famously or infamously wanted to engage in a tremendous amount of censorship and prescriptive art. So we should have art that teaches moral lessons and valiant behavior and good breeding, in fact. And we can't actually show people some kind of terrible tragedy like Medea or something like this. We, we can't do that because you, what comes from the outside does affect who you are as a person. And if someone believes that there are good books out there, then they almost have to logically believe that there are bad books out there. There are things that make you worse. There are things that change your thought waves or however you want to think about it into self-destructive or, or just generally destructive behavior. And I, I, I'll just say this in the sense of we, we do have, in particularly in the United States and Britain, but all over the Western world, uh, we, we do have these conceptions of free speech. And we kind of imagine these in somewhat sentimental fashion. It's, it, it's Mr. Smith goes to Washington. There's the one lone voice who sticks up for common decency and speaks you know, truth to power. And that's all well and good. And I think that's, that happens sometimes. But we just cannot engage in a kind of sentimentality where we don't believe that the internet, the internet, particularly for people who are quite vulnerable, that is young people, teenagers, young, angry, alienated men in their early 20s, that the internet isn't really making them worse. And that let's just also be brutally honest about 4chan. He writes that he discovered all of this stuff in 2020. He was born in 2003. So this is a very young guy. Um, he discovered 4chan in 2020 during the pandemic. Not, not terribly surprising. You're stuck at home. You just go on this board. And he went from within two years, he went from zero to 60 and became a spree killer due to 4chan on some level. Let's just be honest. What exactly has 4chan offered the world outside of just kind of silly political commentary. It is offered a place for to promote child pornography, to promote snuff imagery, and that is imagery of death and torture and, and harm towards animals. It is produced, I don't know, maybe some hot takes that you could also find elsewhere. And it has produced a community that has generated killers like this. Now, I think this guy might have been kind of screwed up and maybe he was young and angry and alienated and we can show understanding, but he also wanted to do this to show off to fellow 4chaners. And so at some point, I mean, we, we recognize this, I think, with young, young children, you know, and like we both, you and Ed, we're, we're kind of dealing with this, you know, screen time for kids you know, the, the iPad or computer, it, it can be fun and you can learn things, but at some point you got to turn it off. And when you have, you know, young girls killing themselves because they don't measure up to some Instagram thought who, 
you know, has a million followers and just shows her boobs off all day and gets all money, you know, oh, I can't measure up to that. I'm going to off myself. That's really destructive. And at some point, adults have to make serious decision decisions, and that includes censoring it. That includes shutting it down. That includes getting rid of swamps like 4chan, because it offers no value to the human race, 4chan. It is full of sick people. It is stupid. Whatever positive things it is promoted, you can easily find elsewhere and, and find w among people who are doing it, it, talking about these really important issues in a responsible way. All 4chan has added to the world is QAnon, conspiracy theories, and spree killers. So I've never actually got into a point. I have zero sympathy for these people, for these freaks who love this kind of nonsense. And I would absolutely support getting rid of this stuff. I would absolutely support legislation that prevents young girls from spending their youth on Instagram. That is so just. I, if you look at immediately. Let me go. I mean, I think that's insane that we've just got too much free speech. Right. There's definitely some downsides with free speech. There are considerable downsides to limiting free speech. Right. I I'm not a fan of 4chan. I find it distasteful, but it, it is a source for some underground information that you can't get elsewhere. And I, I'm, I absolutely believe that 4chan does some harm. It also does some good. I don't know if overall 4chan does more harm or good or vice versa. It, uh, it seems fairly evenly balanced. So there's been all sorts of slaughters and genocide in history without the internet, right? Uh, among the major causes of violence, the internet does not rank there, right? People were slaughtering each other before radio, before TV. So to, to blame this on the internet, I think is missing the point. There are unstable personalities, right? And generally speaking, these are people who lack human connection. Right, we live in a dislocated age where people have weaker ties, where many people don't feel connected to friends, to family, to community, and then when people don't have those real-world connections, right, they go looking for connection. We can't live without connection, and so many people find connection on the internet. But the internet's not the cause of the problem. The internet's the symptom of the problem that people are not connecting in real life, and so. How do we reestablish community, right? Generally speaking, community is a lot easier when it's fairly homogeneous, right? People tend to get along better with people like themselves. But in an increasingly diverse Western world, people increasingly feel less in common with each other. What does diversity mean? Diversity means we have less and less in common with our fellow citizens, Right. That is a recipe for the alienation and dislocation and retreat to the online world. Right. If you want to reestablish community, allow communities to choose who they rent to, who they sell to, who they employ, and who they spend time with. If people were more free to choose, they would naturally establish homogeneous communities and reconnect people to one another. So I think Richard's going off on the symptom of alienation 
rather than what's causing it. I'm, I'm enraged right now myself. Yeah, yeah, I'll, yeah, let me, yeah, let, me yeah, give, yeah. let you Hang talk. <laughs> yeah, yeah, but I've, I've been one of the first things it has. I've never actually been on this website before. And the, uh, Japanese culture, you're going to get some twat that's going to say, yes, he has, but I, I genuinely have. Japanese <laughs> culture, anime, and manga. Right, that's the first thing that comes up. And I've had questions about that on the Jolly Heretic. And as far as I'm concerned, that's just child porn. Yeah. So, so that's that's the yeah. first thing anime and manga is child porn. That's what anime manga is, is code word for child porn. The second thing is anime backslash cute. Right. So that's that's definitely child porn. That's just that's just going for it in the in the child yeah. porn world. Uh extreme sports we've got here. What else have we got here? Toys. Well, adults have got no business looking into that. Um <clears throat> what else is there here? Paranormal, obviously, yeah. Pony. Oh right, so that, that's that's going to be that's going to be these weirdos that like My Little Pony who are men. And uh, the chat says uh, fleeing to online communities was just inevitable once the internet matured. No, it's not inevitable. I had a great time yesterday. wasn't spending time online. I was hanging out with friends, and I was praying, and I was eating with with friends, and I was singing and dancing with friends. Right, and I was talking to girls, and I was talking to women, and I was talking to blokes, right, and I was talking to every, pretty much everyone I talked to. I'm pretty sure everyone I talked to yesterday was Jewish and either Orthodox Jewish or Orthodox Jewish friendly. So I was in an incre incredibly insulated ex experience yesterday, just hanging out with Orthodox Jews, and that's what I do on on the Sabbath every week, and it's so freeing. There is just you know, such a feeling of safety and you know the rules, the people around you know the rules. And so that allows for, for intimacy, for, for letting your guard down, for relaxing. And it's impossible to have that kind of relaxed connection with other people if there aren't rules that you hold in common, if you don't have a lot of things in common. So, no, it's not inevitable that people live more and more of their life online. When you have family, when you have friends, when you have real life community, you treasure that. It doesn't mean you don't participate at all online, but the online world is not going to take over your life if your offline world is fulfilling enough. The online world only takes over your life if it's providing an intensity and purpose and, and bonding that you don't get in real life, right? We tend to go where we feel most important and most alive. And so plenty of people feel incredibly alive outside of the internet isn't it? So that's yeah what's the common thread on all this stuff basically the sexualization of children hentai yeah. what's that uh, that's literally japanese uh, uh, cartoon porn hentai right. yes okay hentai okay good um hardcore so that's just porn high <laughs> resolution i imagine that's just porn so so uh, politics yeah, <laughs> you know and then, and then you can have it if you want in Japanese. So you can the whole site's available in Japanese, which is going to mean porn and tentacles coming out of vaginas and God knows what. So, mm -hmm. so yeah. So, so I, I don't think it's uh, it's very wholesome. It's it's not very wholesome, obviously. This uh, this fortune <laughs> thing. But that that's uh, that's what they can find, and that's the problem with the internet that it has. Uh, it's the new the new revolution. You probably would have had people having similar discussions uh, back when they brought in printing. Oh my right. God! What kind of stuff is going to be read now? And and th there were periods of trying to censor the printing presses, or or when they when they brought in talking. Yeah, the first book that was printed was the Bible. The third book was a work of pornography. 
So when I was bedridden by extreme chronic fatigue syndrome between 1988 and 1994, I, I didn't have access to the internet then, but I created a virtual world of friendships through the telephone because I was living in isolated Northern California. I would send out cassette tapes. I would answer singles ads in Jewish publications around the world. There was a Jewish pen pal service, right? I started corresponding with this woman in Israel whose father was a sports writer. Ended up meeting her when I went to Israel in, in the year 2000. So I think virtual friends, as long as they are virtuous, I mean, that has a, a good effect on you, or as long as they're not you know, leading you down, down a dark path. And I noticed very quickly when I was placing and answering singles ads that what I put out into the world was what I would get back. So when I talk about being lonely, right, I, I'd get lonely people who would contact me. I'd get bizarros and randos and antisocial people. When I put forth a, a positive energy, I'd get positive energy back. So when you can't navigate in real life, whether through illness, mental or physical, or circumstance, you know, virtual friends can keep you going. They can keep you feeling alive, feeling warm. And sometimes an e-personality, a, a virtual persona, will be of great help. Uh, like all those years, I was isolated, and I was just recording audio tapes that I'd sent to friends in Australia. And I'd sent to friends, you know, all around America. And I would just, you know, talk what I was thinking about on these tapes. And, and that sustained me. I mean, these were most of my most meaningful interactions between about 19... 90 and 1993. I remember I'd have, uh, I'd send tapes to Dennis Prager. I sent letters to Dennis Prager. I'd send tapes, uh, letters to Russell Roberts, the econ talker guy who was my professor at UCLA. I, like I had phone calls with, with Russell Roberts. I had phone calls with other friends. Uh, I, I went back to my friends from childhood and, and, you know, reconnected with them. And so I didn't get to have that many face-to-face -face interactions between 1990 and 1993. But these virtual friendships kept me going. And sometimes I could be more honest and more real uh, when, when I was just recording onto a cassette tape. And, and that's how you know, I navigated when I had no energy, when I was absolutely discouraged and, and couldn't figure out how to navigate reality. So it all depends on the quality of the people that you're connecting to virtually. You know, so suddenly you've got monkeys that could remember when we couldn't talk saying, oh, I've got all the stuff we're discussing. Now we couldn't discuss those things before. We didn't discuss the filthy yeah, stuff. That's for us. Ways. And so um, you have to get some sort of sense of self-esteem somewhere. So there's all kinds of people that are to blame. It's not just the internet. It's the internet plus this broader culture that has developed um, uh, because of it or alongside it or as a corollary right. to it. And mainstream conservative. And Well, I shouldn't say mainstream conservative, <clears throat> but... The Tucker Carlson type of, you know, we can call them paleocons or the the hard right or whatever you want to call them, that it doesn't offer any kind of validation or moralization. It basically does kind of reemphasize. Well, how how should I put this? It's it's maybe the other side of the coin of the left, which is obviously demoralizing and just attacking you know, white people for their identity. Sure. In the sense that, you know, Tucker Carlson, all these people are so excited about him when he's like, you know, we're just being the uh, traditional Americans are just being replaced by Hispanics, by the Democrats. It's all this big conspiracy and it's all purely about numbers and they hate you and they're going to take you out. Well, let's keep it real. Uh, real wages in the United States for less educated people have essentially been flat for 50 years. 
They only started rising under Donald Trump. This is a real problem. And <laughs> government decides wage rates by how many immigrants they let in because the United States has allowed in so many immigrants, both legally and illegally. It is suppressed wages, particularly for the least educated. So people without a high school diploma or people with only a high school diploma have, have not had wage growth in 50 years. Construction wages in Southern California have stayed flat for, for the last 50 years. So people, you know, legacy Americans have many reasons to be concerned about immigration. Doesn't make you genocidal or a bad person. So Tucker Carlson's, you know, raising valid points. You set wage rates when you determine how many immigrants you allow into your country. And for the first time in about 50 years, we started getting substantial wage growth among the least educated Americans under Donald Trump's policies of immigration restriction and fair trade rather than free trade. Well, I find that kind of talk, even if it might have a lot of validity, I get it. I don't think I don't think the Democrats secretly created immigration to win political point of it. Well, they openly did. They, 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 in 1965, they, they were not, no, they, they're not. Maybe they think of it now post the act, but in 1965, the um, immigration was still largely white. And whether that was supporting Democrats, it, it, it becomes a difficult thing you have to prove. Now, there are some later, I, I think there was a, a British politician who was like, we want to rub the right's nose in it by bringing in diversity. Andrew I, Never. I, Andrew Never has no more. Right. I get it. I get it. But let's, let's table that just for the moment. Um, uh, when, when your reaction to this is just we're being replaced, it, it is a tremendously demoralizing vision. Now, it might be worthwhile to... Nobody has the reaction we're being replaced. Nobody has only that reaction, right? People, and I, I don't use great replacement rhetoric. I don't see immigration in those terms, but the United Nations does, right? The United Nations promotes replacement migration. So I don't think it's illegitimate to talk about this and it's somehow some genocidal term when the United Nations is pushing how replacement migration is a great thing. It's a solution to declining and aging populations in the United Kingdom, in the United States, in Japan, Italy, Korea, Russia, Germany, France, all right? The United Nations is all on board with the concept of replacement mi migration. And people who talk about replacement migration, that's not all they talk about. It's not true that, oh, they're just single issue focused and nothing else matters. And it's just so, you know, it's just so depressing that there's just, you know, no depth or width to, to their analysis. But uh, you can make a case that immigration is the number one issue in the Western world. Right? That, that's not absurd. Now, uh, Joe Biden wants to warn us about the dangers of ultra MAGA. Big MAGA, I don't know, some, the king of MAGA. Remember those long lines you'd see in a television? People lining up in all kinds of vehicles just to get a box of food in their trunk. How quickly we forget people were hurting. And what did the MAGA crowd want to do? Forget it. Forget it. Oh, God. Congressman Jim Jordan separates the fake and the fraud. And Oh, yeah. I'm really curious what uh, Jim Jordan has to say. 
talk about this issue of demographics and demographic decline, which is according even a different, a separate issue, but to offer no vision outside of like whining about being replaced, I think is demoralizing. And and uh, who offers no vision? I mean, Tucker Carlson definitely offers a vision. He would like immigration restriction. He would like uh, trade restriction. He would like uh, the, the ceasing of, of a war on America's, you know, white Christians. It does. It, what one has to ask, like, if this is just simply a numbers game, then why don't we go out and kill people? I mean, it, it is a, I, I think it is a very bad way of talking. And it's merely negative. It's merely whining. The person who does the replacing. If you're talking truth, right, if what you're saying is accurate, that's not a bad thing in general, in, in public discussion. Doesn't mean you say the truth in every you know, private interaction. Doesn't mean you say the truth publicly and, and then leads to you getting fired and alienated from everyone who's close to you. But as a general policy for public discussions, yeah, telling the truth is really good and really important, even if it's sad, even if it's even depressing or negative. So to the extent that people are telling the truth when they're complaining about demographics, and they're complaining about immigration, that is a good and holy thing. To me, the truth is holy. The truth is good, even if it makes you sad, right? Frequently, I think in general, truth is more important than vision. Sometimes vision is more important than truth. And sometimes believing all sorts of non-rational things such as, oh, you are right here for a reason and a purpose, and there's nowhere else in the world you should be than right where you are right now, or you know whatever... The, the religious perspective that you're part of God's chosen people or you know, God gave this message and, you know, God loves you, right? You can't prove these, these ideas empirically, but they certainly seem to benefit a lot of people's lives. ...is almost moralized by it. You know, I'm replacing you. I'm, this is going to be my time. Um, that's kind of moralizing. I, I just think the whole right, like the, the way that it, deals with these very serious issues is wrong. Um, and even if it didn't inspire, even, uh, even if it doesn't inspire, you know, terrible acts like what we just saw, it's still wrong. It's still a kind of fundamentally demoralizing kind of tragic outlook of, of, you know, well, you know, uh, I, it's too bad that in 20 years there'll be no more white people. Hmm. Well, that's not it's, even um, true. It's a, it's, it's a, well, yeah, it's a, it, it's a negative outlook. Yeah, and it, and normally normally people are attracted to something positive. So right. if you've got people that are saying we're we're going to make a more equal world, equality, whatever, uh, that's that's for some people something positive. And if you turn around and say we're going to make a world where which where where people everyone's happy and uh, it, it's going to be like a little house on the prairie, but without any bad stuff like that explosion or that time when that girl set fire to the barn and it burnt her teacher's favorite history book that she'd lent her, um, <laughs> then 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 that's positive. But just right. saying, oh, we're being replaced. Oh my God, whites are going to be a minority in England by 2066. That's not positive. So they should they should they should um, as a tactic, I suspect that the, the, the positive can be more more motivating <clears throat> to the best people and then a negative a totally negative outlook <clears throat> calls upon the worst in everyone and is motivating toward the worst people did you see that episode that i was just referring to that i i didn't see that one i did actually watch little house in the prairie with my sister when i was younger i have, I have memories of it 
um yeah was that a good was that that was an overall good show that was a kind of little it was set in minnesota I Americana. it was set in minnesota mm-hmm. right now george floyd would be making his way there and <laughs> it'd be a less pleasant uh, experience but uh yeah that's minnesota mm. All right, uh, let's do a super chat or two. Uh, an Apollonian. Uh, um, an Apollonian. Uh, let an me Apollonian. put up the stream as well. Well, uh, you know, we're starting a new religion, y'all. Um, okay. Uh, an Apollonian. So if you want to jump in the conversation, uh, you can get us here. We, it's, it's, it's a lot of things. I would just Google Mark Rahman. Would you still classify yourself as a white nationalist? Well, I mean, I, I, I don't really buck that term because it, it, it's a overall fair term. Um, I don't think it's the, the, that term itself is just meant to demean someone. It's not like calling someone a maniac um, or, or exactly a commie or something. But um, I, I've never really liked that term. I, I preferred identitarian for a while. I, I don't quite know if, if anything I would call myself uh, an Apollonian, uh, an Apollonian, uh, an Apollonian. But it's, although that, that would be, uh, that would to be exceedingly esoteric at the moment, esoteric at the moment. But um, it's, I, I'm just, I'm not, I'm, I'm not interested in just a purely racialized politics. I'm from Tom Foolery. So what is Apolloism? Well, you know, we're starting a new religion, y'all. Um, it's, uh, we, it, it's a, a lot of things. I would just Google Mark Brahman. And uh, it is a just fascinating and extremely exciting new analytical frame you could say but i think beyond that uh, apolloism is what it sounds like um uh, apolloism is what it sounds like um uh, apolloism is what it sounds like if anything i would call myself uh, an apollonian so what is an apollonian well you have to go for rem theory All right that's Apo- have you ever wondered why it is that so much of the modern world feels as though it is in opposition to your own ideal Right, you you think Richard doesn't have a vision? He is an Apollonian. We arrive now at the central question of this series. What is Apolloism, and why is it the answer to the problems that beset the West? The god Apollo, who stands at the center of this revival religion, may seem to some a curious choice. After all, if one was seeking to revive an ancient religion, why wouldn't he seek instead to revive a Norse or Celtic religion based on the myths sometimes believed to comprise those lost religions. How surprised would you be to find that there is little evidence to suggest that the Norse and Celtic myths predate Christianity, or at least in any recognizable developed form? How surprised would you be to find that their primary stories, which evince biblical influence, arrive to us through medieval Christian sources, often through the church itself? But perhaps we should ask first, is the messaging in these myths even useful towards civilizational aims? Okay, let's get to those super chats. odyssey.com slash at radix colon C. The end of history concept is this just total enclosure of your experience and consciousness. That there is, there is no way out. There is nothing you can possibly think other than... I want to be a Walmart shopper or something. This is it. And a, and a good voting Democrat, Democratic citizen. This is it. There is nothing else. It is, it is a rather terrifying enclosure of the mind, that end of history concept. And that if you can begin to at least imagine 
other futures and so on and, and, and listen to the past in a way um, that is moralizing. Yeah, I think that's very poetic and correct. I've just found a, <laughs> I just found a tweet that said that uh, the Buffalo murderer cited the journal Personality and Individual Differences in his rant. Um, yes. And thus, by implication, that journal should be shut. Yeah, I mean, again, I, I, I think, I do think that this is free speech and disinformation and misinformation and censorship is in the air, and so my prediction is that much as Dylan Roof's murder led to the Confederate flags coming down, probably the opposite of what he wanted. I, I do think that there's going to be talk of gun control, there's going to be talk of mental health, but this will eventually become an issue of of free speech. And again, it, this, it has to be dealt with in some way. And I think a way to contribute to the conversation is to offer some actual solutions and not just be a free speech absolutist where you're, you're just supporting the, the, the toxic stew of 4chan. You think that's great. We need more QAnon. We need more, you know, anime porn in the minds of 16-year-olds. You know, I mean, it's just it's just a position that's just disgusting. Um, okay. Yehuda Finkelstein, of course, my most avid super chatter. Richard, in a monologue, you discuss some of Nick Fuentes' His personality flaws, like having unrealistic views of women in 1950s America. Nick's flaws led to the recent implosion of America. Okay, hold on. Nick's flaws led to the recent implosion of America. I guess he means America first. What are or were your own personality flaws that call cause personal and movement setbacks in 2017-2018? Okay, that's fair. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I think I have a degree of narcissism and, and kind of an arrogant personality. And I, I want things to be, um, I, I think that I'm right and everyone should follow me. I mean, I, I, I think I, I have those types of flaws. Um, I think it's fair to criticize me as such. Um, I do think that, the, I mean, what I was getting at in my podcast monologue discussion of Nick Fuentes, I, I, I think there are some really deep flaws within any kind of young alt-right movement and where people who are attracted to 4chan go into the real world. And wh whether that's in the way that this, you know, person just went in, went IRL and just started shooting people. Um, or or there, I think there are some other problems of forming a movement based around sites like 4chan and the people who are attracted to it. I think they're just really serious problems with that. I could uh, add that uh, with regard to what you were saying about your own personal flaws, perhaps the reason why this works as a duo chat thing is that I'm obviously the opposite. I've, I've always been very humble, um, extremely open-minded, um, and, uh, and, and just kind-hearted. And, and that makes me the opposite of you. And that's perhaps mm -hmm. why you know, it sort of works. Or maybe you're just facilitating my narcissism. Oh, yeah, co-narcissist. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay. Uh, you do Finkelstein again. Um, Richard, you mentioned watching Kino Casino. Has Ed seen Kino Casino? 
is PPP John Candy's is PPP John Candy's bastard son. Oh, have you ever seen have you seen this show or clips from it? Uh, Kino Casino. So it it uh, did you see any of the clips of the discussion of Nick Fuentes and America First? Okay, I did a very I I actually did a monologue that was entitled "In Defense of Nick Fuentes," sort of because. I I didn't want to just engage in the gossip mongering and rumors. You know, that that can be fun on some level, but I think it's more important to look at endemic problems within the, all of these movements. I just think that's much more enlightening. So I I don't like Nick very very likely is immature and extremely selfish and whatever has sexuality issues. Probably true, but who cares on some level? Like that, that's not the cause. That, that's not why that movement has these problems. These problems are endemic to these online extremist movements. So I, it was in defense of them, from a certain point. Um, but yeah, uh, I have. I've. I've only seen that show because I've seen some clips from it where they're just gossiping. That seems to be their forte. Um, aren't nine-hour streams dissecting a debate between Nick Fuentes and Mr. Metacore symptomatic of why Zoomers are so fucked up being entirely online? Yes. I mean, this is a, a absolute. This is another issue of um, hyper-reality, where the online world isn't just a means of communication, and it isn't just a kind of representation of the real world but is this kind of new not even a simulation but just almost like realer than the real world it's there you know there, there's a there's a point where you like an online personality or a television personality or a movie star and you're like oh i wish that i could be you know i wish that i could date margot robbie or something you know she's so beautiful and charismatic and so you you know you then there's another point where your entire life is about your online interaction with some celebrity like Margot Robbie or some podcaster like Nick Fuentes where you have a kind of your the, the hyper real is when that relationship is more important or supplants or replaces any actual real life interaction. So everyone has a crush on a celebrity or whatever. Everyone deals in the digital realm of course we do but when that realm replaces real life when it becomes more realer than even better than the real thing so to speak that that's when you entered a hyper real situation and yeah the zoomers they've they they can't remember a world without the internet i ed and i definitely can't um and i i i think that yeah in, in some ways it, it's that virtual world which is that's where they live that's where they exist that's where their identity is found and i think this is extremely problematic and it's why there should be national legislation limiting screen time do you have any thoughts well i don't know about national legislation limiting screen time i i we should see the you know how you, it, it, when I was a kid, you had to be 16 to buy cigarettes. And yeah. it was completely socially unacceptable for anyone under the age of 16 to smoke cigarettes. They should do that with the internet. You should mm -hmm. have to be 25 or possibly 30 so that your brain is fully formed to use the internet. 
That, that, that seems sad. That's it. Um, okay. Uh, this is from Hirward Silvatici. Um, yes, I also listened to your monologue regarding Fuentes. Um, where were the adults indeed? Yeah, this is the, what I, what I finished up on was, you know, Nick Fuentes, they, they created this like political action committee and they were creating all these institutions and you had all of these boom. Now I didn't tap anyone on that movie, but there were complaints that I was a little overly friendly with the Sheila's on that movie. I'm not saying anyone, anyone pictured, uh, complained about me, but I have to admit there, there were complaints. And then there's a question like, uh, how many people were there were I tapping in the back of the back of my vehicle here? Right. So I was driving, I think a 19, you know, 1976 Datsun uh, station wagon. And this is, I was in a 1994, 1995. So my first, first year in, in Los Angeles. So the shameful thing is I probably tapped about 10 women in the back and probably 90% of them, I didn't even buy them dinner first. So that was bad. I mean, that was just Chad and it left me feeling empty inside. Thank God I've now evolved to a higher plane. Boomers who were basically rooting them on because America first, much more than anything I've ever done, is just catnip for the boomers. It's just like, oh, we love this stuff. They're flag waving. and Boomers love, or old people in general, just love to hear young people say what they think. You know, it's like a, you hear a child preacher and you just are infatuated with them. Oh, look. So this is the first time in my life that I ever drank, drank coffee. So I was uh, 27 years of age and drinking coffee was a, it was a sin in my Seventh Adventist background. Is but Jerry Swift in? On this, on this set, I, I drank my first bit of coffee and uh, led to incredible amounts of debauchery. God forbid. Look, he's saying exactly what I think. Wonder where he got that. It's, the youth love us. They, boomers love that stuff. And so they loved America first, but they never took control of it. It's like, why, why is this child? And, and Nick really was, is immature. I mean, he is very much like a child. Why is this child in charge? Why are we putting all this responsibility on young people? As opposed to the older ones coming in and not just exploiting Nick, but actually helping him to build something that's sustainable and sane. All the all the boomers wanted to do was exploit Nick. This is weird that I'm defending Nick Fuentes, but I'm nothing if not realistic. All the boomers who interacted with Nick, all they wanted to do was exploit him. So when they saw that he had, due to his craziness, and guess what? Everyone, pretty much everyone's trying to exploit you, right? That that's just how the world works. Not necessarily in a malicious way, but people want what people want. And only if they have rational reasons to have particular care for you. Other than that, they're going to see you as an object to satisfy their needs. Right? So there's nothing particularly nefarious in the relationship of boomers to Nick Fuentes. I mean, that's how the world is. Right? When you go to the checkout stand and the checkout girl smiles at you, it's not necessarily because she really cares about you. It's because she is just doing her job. And unless she does her job in a particular way, she could get fired. So... We're all 
interacting with others and and forced to use people as means to an end right we, we there was a philosopher the i thou philosopher martin buber who, who would you know talk about the importance of not using people as as an end and so he'd get into these long lengthy conversations with the plumber right because he didn't want the plumber to feel like he was just using him to fix his plumbing but that doesn't really work either right there's no there's no escaping that for most of us most of the time most of the people we interact with are just uh, transactional interactions personal personality that he had an organic audience which he did and to some extent does all they wanted to do was to get him involved in some political machinations that they were engaged in so it's like let's get him involved in stop the steal we need to bring him to j6 and this is on the level of the luke take that loving someone means hating everyone else no if you love someone it means you hate those who threaten your loved one i don't know how you love someone without hating those who threaten and endanger your loved one we we need to you know all they wanted to do was exploit him and so ultimately nothing is created because there aren't any adults in the room and so i mean on some level you have to criticize these old people and and not just like treat him as yet another sacrificial lamb oh it's so sad it didn't work out well it didn't work out because serious people with money did not build institutions where you could channel these people in that direction yeah that was another thing this guy said that was wrong this uh, this, uh what was his the buffalo now? shooter this italian sounding this guy the shooter um he yeah. said oh, oh that, that there's going to be this um populist revolt oh yeah it's inevitable no it isn't um it, it has to be a populist revolt combined with powerful people in a, in a kind of counter elite has to be those right. two things and he seems to just think that uh, this is a patent get wrong um that, that it seems to be, oh it's as long as there's lots and lots of people no it doesn't work like what but lots then, and lots of whites are going to wake up and start 18, just shooting people he's 18 so he shouldn't ex we shouldn't really expect them i guess to have a fully formed uh, reasonable understanding of how things work right okay um Zor Toxcraft, I guess this is the second one. Uh, I just want to say real quick, love the stuff you and Ed do. Also, you. will you be having more conversations with Joel Davis? Yeah, um, I, I did an interesting conversation on geopolitics and philosophy and stuff with Joel Davis. And yeah, you know, jo Joel's rubbed me the wrong way a little bit here and there, but that's all right. Uh, I can talk to people. So yeah, I'll, I'll probably do some more uh, conversations with you. Um, let me see if there's anything else here. Are these being sent through Odyssey, these questions? Yes, these are all being yes, sent through Odyssey. If you're watching this and you also watch The Jolly Heretic, then, um, you know, do have a go at sending things through Odyssey, because I tried last week and nobody did. They did the entropy and the YouTube. Odyssey seems to be... Yeah, awesome. you just gotta kind of, um, drag people off the platform that you're moving off. Um, <laughs> uh, okay. Yehuda Finkelstein again. Nick, Nick Fuentes is the Mexican child leader of the white race. Yeah, I agree. Um, let's see this. I think I got them all. Yeah. Okay. So Elon Musk, real quick, because we've we've raised the we've raised the 
the, the censorship issue. I've said this on some of my monologues that, that I've done um, that are for subscribers only. I, I should make some of these um, public as well, but because um, this will be public, of course. Um, I think what Elon Ma I, I think that the, the dissident right has, to a large extent, misunderstood Elon Musk, and they've engaged in a lot of wishful thinking about him. And you saw this when the day of the purchase, and it, it wasn't even the actual purchase, because it seems to be in limbo at this point. Um, and certainly he hadn't taken control. But the day that this was announced in the press, you had all of these dissident right guys coming on. And it's like, at last, we can say the N-word. And just being as outrageous as humanly possible and making fools of themselves and being instantly banned for this. Um, I think it's wrong to think that Elon Musk just simply wants to bring back the Wild West. And he's said as much. One of the things that struck me about Musk that I totally agree with was that the big problem with Twitter is, is it's not just hate speech or something like that, but it's actually the bots. The fact that you have people coming in, manipulating the platform, trying to sell you stupid you know, NFT schemes or Bitcoin or troll farms from Russia or whatever, trying to stir up shit that will help them with NATO, who knows? Just a lot of bad actors, bad faith people. And that one way of countering that is verification. And so it's not just the kind of blue check mark, you know, I'm a celebrity or whatever, but, or I'm a journalist with 300 followers, but I have a blue check mark. And you. So back in uh, 2000 and late 2007, 2008, I was on these live streaming platforms with one of my elementary cams and uh, meeting people. And there was one guy I met who was a French uh, classical music composer, Pascal Dussapin. And uh, he, he ended up, he ended up uh, creating, creating uh, something for me. So... Where, where is Pascal Dussapin? So here we go. He did this double concerto, and he, he wrote he wrote an ode for me, ode to the moral leader. So he thought he thought I was like a shark in in the chat room that I'd set up.
Okay, that's from Pascal Dussepin. I don't know the French pronunciation, uh, French classical music composer. He did Ode to the Moral Leader. You don't, um, which is more likely. But the verification in the sense of you are a human being. You don't necessarily need to use your own name and photo, but you have verified yourself in the sense of a social security number or driver's license or, or the, the equivalent in other countries. Passport number, I don't know that you are a real person and thus you can take responsibility for what you say and that you are not a bot, that you are not a bad actor, you're, you are a real person. And I would also add that I agree the banning is crappy and I got banned you know, back in 2016 for no good reason really, other than just I was becoming notorious in the press. Um, but if you're a real person, then at least then you have some sort of recourse, some sort of appeal process where you can return to the platform and say, okay, I get it. That was out of bounds. We all make mistakes, blah, blah, blah. But I've sat out for a month and now I'm back and I'm going, and I've learned something, maybe just learned how to follow the rules. So I, I think what Musk is offering is good. Very Go specifically tell you what you've said. So it's no good saying so this is this is against these exact words in this exact context are against the rules and this is why, and that's the kind of thing I think there should be like legislation on that you can't a public company cannot discriminate against somebody without a very specific reason and without setting out exactly why and how that breaks their their own rules and that 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 there should be that would be good to have legislation on so you can't throw someone off a bank because of some vague thing about terrorism into exactly what they've said or done, but it is the problem. <clears throat> word for word. I agree. I, this is one thing I, 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 I've also talked with someone who's actually involved in a, in a platform. And, um, he, he asked me, he was, he was saying, should, should we just explicitly say that white people can't use the N word, but black people can. And I said, yes, just tell us what the rules are. That's cool. You know, like I get it. I, I, yeah, it's kind of hypocritical and unfair. Okay. But I would prefer a rule like that as opposed to the ambiguity that you don't know what's going to get you banned. You could say something perfectly reasonable and get banned. You could then insult someone when you're, you know, it's late at night and you're drunk or whatever. You just insult someone. Oh, that's fine. That's fine let it pass. You're just, you know, you're just venting or whatever. It just makes, and then, then your, your reasonable tweet gets your account shut down. I mean, it, it's exactly. not it's fair. It's Kafkaesque. I mean, at least they should be yeah. clear. As my friend, uh, uh, Linton, um, <clears throat> Matthew, Linton Matthews, uh, has said, there is such a thing as black privilege and black privilege is they can say these things, but white people can't. That's black privilege. That's like what you used to have in the 16th century, that a person that was a member of the gentry, they could kill someone in a duel. That wasn't murder. But if you did so and you weren't a member of the gentry, that was murder. So, right. and, and, But that was explicit. But everyone knew that. That was the rules. No one was saying that there's equality before the law. There isn't equality before the law. And that should be explicit. If, you know, if there's no equality before Twitter law, then say so, so that we know. I agree. Uh, real quick, one more. MK Ultra. How are you going to ban boomers off the internet when they are the ones who push this type of insanity? Yeah, I think what he's getting at is... There, there's this, and, and I think actually, 
to give some credit to our liberal overlords, I think they've actually understood this to a degree. Whereas four or five years ago, it was, we need to ban the alt-right. We need to deplatform Richard Spencer because apparently he's like, no one would be thinking these thoughts are generating if it wasn't for him and people like him. So we need to get rid of him. Um, I, I think they have reassessed this to some degree and reassessed it for good reason. Um, Okay, that that's delusional. The reason that uh, Richard was banned or anyone gets banned is that uh, websites, corporations, groups, churches, synagogues all want to create a particular ethos, want to enforce some sort of standards, want some sort of code of behavior. And wherever you draw the line, there's going to be a substantial arbitrary component. So if you make the speed limit 55, I mean, is it unjust that people driving 57 might end up getting a speeding ticket? So anytime you try to enforce any kind of uh, decency, any kind of exclusion, there, there are people who are going to suffer. It's not because people are so stupid that they think, oh, you know, these ideas will not get out. They will not become popular. They will not infect people if we simply ban Richard. Um, QAnon dwarfed the alt-right by a magnitude of a thousand or something like that. I mean, it... it just was tremendously more popular. And it was not a intellectual kind of, it was top down to a certain extent, but it, it, it was very much bottom up. It was about planting memes into people's heads on these forums and then just watching them go. And the, there is a weird aspect to a lot of the kind of mainstream people where they will you know, be diligent Republican Party voters but then they will be radicalized in other ways. And it will be like, oh, my God, if Joe Biden gets in there, we got to hang Mike Pence, you know, God damn it, kind of stuff. There, there's a weird aspect where the, the more mainstream boomer <laughs> conservatives are more radical than the alt-right was. I mean, it's just strange, but it's a, it's a weird phenomenon that is happening. I think we've all been, or, or all the normies have been kind of brainwashed and radicalized in a way that, we, that people did not understand. And so they were focusing on kind of extremist. So reasonable and responsible is making the point, you know, 40, you should rein in the excesses on the chat. And so let's say I rein in some excesses, you know, someone fairly arbitrary, maybe unfairly, is going to be disadvantaged. So anytime you try to enforce any kind of moral standards, anytime you try to, you know, elevate a, a conversation, anytime you try to elevate a community or a gathering, there are going to be people who fairly arbitrarily suffer. There's no other way to have standards. There's no other way to have any kind of exclusivity. There's no other way to to no there are other ways to create an ethos but that's one way for extremist intellectuals or whatever and i think they've now kind of re-centered on normies and i yeah the normies the normies are crazier than the extremist on some weird level um so yeah i mean banning boomers <laughs> at least in terms of political discourse boomers should be allowed to post recipes on Facebook and um, talk about and uh, the chat says I love Luke's old cast that he had you know these people were emotionally damaged and strange people 
Uh, but if, if participating in live streaming is substantially against your best interests, which, which many people discovered, then uh, people are going to dial that back. So I remember when I first started blogging on the porn industry, people were incredibly open. But then once I started publishing these interviews, people became much more discerning and discriminating in what they would tell me. So in general, there's nothing people love more than talking about themselves. So I, I got to have a lot of great people on the show. I got to have you know, incredibly compelling interviews with people. But at the same time, there's nothing people love more than talking about themselves and their perspectives on life. There's nothing they hate more than seeing it end up in print. There's nothing they hate more than dealing with the repercussions of being so open. So we have all these desires, such as to share our brilliance with the world, but then we also have desires to preserve our well-being. And open discussion of our thoughts and, and sharing our frailties and uh, you know, saying stupid things that blow back on us, right? people, people learn from that. Right, here's Richard in defense of Nick Fuentes. I also totally agree that the conservatives are moving towards the alt-right or the dissident right, although that kind of twisted in, a, in an interesting way, which I think I'll talk about in just a little bit. So the, the notion was we will blend into the wallpaper of the Republican Party as op optics uh, amnats. So we'll wave flags and dress in khakis and polos and talk about how much we love America and so on. We can't have that. We can't have, on the one hand, the wignat, the guy with tattoos who's screaming and attacking people. We can't have that. We also can't have Spencer. Now, Spencer, granted, dresses well, but he's, you know, an atheist and he hates conservatives and he's into Nietzsche and he says you know, all, all sorts of outlandish things. And, you know, we, we... and what about my code of conduct? Well, having a code of conduct has substantially improved discourse. So uh, compared to what my chat used to be like, I think things are pretty rad these days. Can't have that either. We need to kind of blend in, you know, work our way up the conservative middle ladder. Soon, you know, we'll, the conservatives will be us. This was the idea. Um... I think there was a there was kind of inherent contradictions to Wignatism or, or Hamnatism. Or... I think I'm going to hit the beach this afternoon. Lovely day. I think high is about 75. Maybe go swimming. Opticsism. And these are the contradictions. Um, some of these people who are professed Amnats have the worst optics. Not all of them, but most of them. There's another contradiction, which is that, and I don't think this contradiction was quite foreseeable, but the conservative movement went towards Trumpism and then towards QAnon and all sorts of things. The conservatives became more radical than the alt-right. I mean, that, and I don't, and I, I didn't foresee that, and I, I don't think many other people did. It, it's a, it's a wild thing where if you look at these two, the conservatives did not become more radical than the alt-right, right? And, and the January 6th rioters did not embody conservatism. It was some particularly antisocial, dysfunctional, uh, delusional uh, hangers-on, you know, people lacking in co common sense who invaded the Capitol January 6th. Rallies. Like, look at Charlottesville in mid to late 2017 and then uh, January 6th on, uh, in, in the beginning of 2021, of course. Um, very similar. You can make a lot of comparisons with them. They are Trump-based rallies that went out of control for various reasons. And became albatrosses hanging around everyone's neck. That's a fair description. There wasn't a lot of crossover between the two rallies. Now, there, there's a notable crossover. Nick Fuentes being one person, baked Alaska, famously went into uh, Nancy Pelosi's office. Some appliance is beeping. But there wasn't a lot of crossover. 
the the people who went to Charlottesville were, I would say, mostly alt-right people. There were a lot of, there's many white nationalists. There were some, you know, people invited, as I learned later by Jason Gessler. Uh, That's a great song. Actual Nazi, turn, neo-Nazis. Turn, turn so around. Um, we should make that top 40. So the the manifesto of the guy who shot up the supermarket in Buffalo, he's very opposed to virtual relationships. He says, uh, virtual relationships include many things. One of my favorite examples is those found in sites like OnlyFans and Twitch. So so the, the shooter and Richard Spencer seem to have the same perspective on virtual relationships. On OnlyFans, mostly men can pay to talk and to see news of people they're choosing. And on Twitch, there's many cam girls, hot tub streamers, that make their living by having a virtual relationship with their viewers. These viewers will often pay money to have their name signed on their leg or be caught out by their specific person. This discourages actual relationships with actual people, which actively prevents births of the new generation. No, I, I don't think that uh, virtual relationships are discouraging actual relationships. What's happening is that people without actual relationships are finding a substitute form of connection. So according to the Buffalo shooter, virtual relationships are one of the reasons for the decay of the white race. This must be managed and controlled or discouraged heavily. So he seems to have the same views of virtual relationships and the internet as Richard Spencer. You know, there was a a whole host of of people, Uh, but you could say that they were kind of the nonconformist types. January 6th was very different. January 6th was normies. Now the Groypers were there and the Groypers were derived from the all right in question, but it was a normie rally. And the normies had become more radicalized than the alt-right of old was. I mean, the normies were invading the Capitol. The normies were talking about hanging Mike Pence. The normies were talking about keeping Trump in office for four years, I guess, maybe forever. No one made any of those types of claims in Charlottesville. I mean, I can remember when the Charlottesville rally was scuttled, when in a state of emergency was called before the rally began. And 99 out of 100 people left and went home. And then chaos ensued in downtown. I don't need to revisit this. Maybe I'll revisit it, revisit it in another broadcast. Um, January 6th was far more intense and has obviously eclipsed Charlottesville by a factor of 100 or 1,000 in terms of discussion about it and its impact and its legacy. So I don't don't think AF fully recognized that idea. It it, it was a weird thing. I I think mainstream conservatives molded into the alt-right just as much as the alt-right kind of molded into conservatives. Interesting. Worth talking more about yeah, that's absurd. All right, uh, the alt-right did not just merge into conservatism and conservatism into the alt-right. And it wasn't that the people January 6th were more radical than members of the alt-right. It's just that the situation gave gave uh, freedom to act in you know, particularly destructive, socially destructive ways. So ordinary people with a lack of common sense were placed in a situation to wreak more havoc. And... There was far more law enforcement at Charlottesville who were able to control the situation compared to January 6th. But the other contradiction... So, yeah, a lot of what uh, sets the line between you know, very destructive and just mildly destructive people is, you know, what's the pushback? What's the defense against them? So the defense against this crowd on January 6th was completely ineffectual. The defense against this crowd at Charlottesville was more effectual. At the heart of AF and why it couldn't really work was that Nick ultimately had to maintain his following. And Nick absolutely had an organic following. There are many people, grifter types, who I find to be just totally synthetic. I, I'm thinking of someone like Jack Murphy or something like that. I don't think he, ha- he had any sort of audience. 
I think he was propped up by multiple people. He had an audience because Tim Pool gave him an audience. Um, he had an audience because the Claremont Review of Books or the whatever it is um, decided to give him grants. But he was prom- I, I think he was entirely sympathetic. Not entirely, but mostly sympathetic. Nick had a genuine audience that he created and cultivated in ways that I described earlier. And that was the reason that he got in bed with... Jack Murphy had an audience due to the high quality of his guests. That's why. Uh, not many people have the charisma of the Kevin Michael Grace who could just hold the attention of the crowd solo for hours. Longtime conservative activist. Women for Trump, Women for America First, Alex Jones, Ali Akbar. All these people have long legacies of dirty tricks of you know conservative political engineering, etc. And they saw Nick. He has a real audience. He has 10,000 Zoomers watching his stream in 2020. We need to tap into that. And they are hardcore, least in, least rhetorically. So Nick ultimately got involved in this structure that I have identified as multi-level marketing. And so what do I mean by that? So imagine a typical multi-level marketing scheme like Mary Kay or doTERRA or something like that. Now, there's the product, right? Makeup or essential oils or whatever. And you have the producer who gets it out there. And then you have a series of channels. So it's kind of like a wheel with multiple spokes coming out of it. And if you create a channel, you're going to create an additional down channel, downstream. So let's say I have been in doTERRA for a long time. I'm good at selling this product. I sell, you know, I I have like 100 good customers. Well, 20% of those customers are going to start selling it themselves. And I'm going to get a kickback. Yeah, I'm not sure how powerful it is. It is a sold down channels. All of those sales, those super, no one said that about Nick on the part of mainstream conservatives. They were like, who, who are these alt-conservatives? We don't like them. They're evil. They hate us. They're like Trump. They're socialists. They're from the left. Blah, blah, blah. You hear all that. No one said that about Nick. Nick. People would run cover for Nick by saying, oh, he's just a concerned young conservative. I mean, when Marjorie Taylor Greene went to speak at AFPAC, and what we learned later, she, she might have been induced to do that by uh, Milo, another character from the past. But anyway, when she went there, she explained it away as saying, well, I wanted to go talk about America First policies with young people, a thousand young people. And I don't know who Nick Fuentes is. Well, the latter is a bit unbelievable, but the former is absolutely true. She wanted to go get his audience. Those people, Alex Jones wanted to get his audience. Those people who were organizing January 6th wanted Nick involved to get his audience. He has an organic audience that they do not have. They are simply political operatives. He is a personality with a cultivated audience in the way that I described. Okay, so I don't think January 6th was some kind of catastrophe for conservatism. It was a catastrophe for a a group of people with really, really bad judgment. Let's get a little bit more from this May 12 debate in Toronto about how to resolve the Russia-Ukraine war. On one side, you've got Stephen Walt and John Mearsheimer, the realists, going up against Michael McFaul and uh, Radislaw Sikorsky, former foreign minister for Poland. To the North Atlantic Treaty Organization. There's one more. You have to have uh, civilian control of the armed forces, but that's an easy one. So he was trying to make the case they should invite uh, Russia into NATO once Russia becomes a democracy. And he was just detailing the requirements for joining NATO. You must have an answer (laughs) to that one. Uh, Along the same, same lines here? deal with the, the point that Radek just brought up and, and that Russia... 
thinks that a great power, whether it's the United States or Russia, will behave in a brutal fashion if it thinks, if it thinks its interests are being threatened. And the Russians believe that their interests are being threatened in Ukraine, that if Ukraine becomes a Western bulwark on their border, that is, in effect, an existential threat to them. Mike and Radek can disagree with that, but that's what the Russians think. And when great powers think like that, they behave in brutal ways. And my view, and I've long said this about Ukraine, it is in Ukraine's national interest to act smartly with regard to Russia and not poke the Russian bear in the eye with a stick because it will lead to a situation like the one that you now face. Am I happy about the fact that this is the way the world works? Absolutely not. But I am a realist, and I think Ukraine would be much better off today if it had acted according to the... Okay, here's uh, John Mishama on PBS last week. I think initially uh, the Biden administration thought the best we could do in Ukraine was to stymie the Russian offensive by assisting the Ukrainians. But when it became clear that the Ukrainians were doing very well on the battlefield against the Russians, we escalated and eventually greatly escalated our goals. And we're now bent on inflicting a decisive defeat on Russian forces in Ukraine. In other words, beating them decisively on the battlefield. And in addition, wrecking the Russian economy with sanctions. And all of this is designed to greatly weaken Russian power. Secretary of Defense Austin has made this very clear. And in fact, one could argue that what he and his colleagues in the Biden administration are interested in doing is knocking Russia out of the uh, great power ranks. Evelyn Farkas, do you see this? Okay, here's more from the debate. Have voice in this discussion, especially when a bigger power moves in with force, uh, with no provocation from the smaller power. Well, they have lots of voice. There's no question that the Ukrainians have voice, and there's no question that the Ukrainians have agency. But the problem is, when you live next door to a gorilla, if you do certain things that antagonize the gorilla, the gorilla is going to come after you and do horrible things to you. You might not like this, but this is the way... Canada in Canada living next to the United States? <laughs> I'm sorry. I was going to say, Canadians should understand this. Yeah, just, just on this point, I want to ask all the Canadians in the audience a very simple question. If in 20 years, Canada formed a military alliance with China and invited China to put military forces in Canada, what do you think the United States would do? I guarantee you the United States would behave towards Canada in very similar ways to how Russia is behaving towards Ukraine. We have the Monroe Doctrine, and we would never tolerate Chinese forces in Canada. We would never tolerate Canada forming a military alliance with China. You might not like this, but this is the way the world works. And I believe Canadians are sophisticated enough, enough to know yeah. that this is a bad idea. That is more mission. The Russians are retaliating in ways that the U.S. isn't prepared to deal with. I think, Judy, this policy that the Biden administration is following is remarkably dangerous and foolish. We know that the one circumstance in which a great power is likely 
to use nuclear weapons is when it, its survival is threatened, when it thinks an, a decisive defeat is being inflicted on it. And what the Biden administration is bent on doing is inflicting a decisive defeat on Russia. We are threatening its survival. We are presenting the Russians with an existential threat. And this, again, is the one circumstance where they might use nuclear weapons. And I think we should be going to enormous lengths to make sure that we don't put them into a position where they even countenance using nuclear weapons, much less use them. Evelyn Farkas, is that uh, the risk here? That I think it's very important to understand that if he were to use nuclear weapons, he would use them in all likelihood in Western Ukraine. And there are no NATO or American forces in Western Ukraine. So he would not be attacking us. He would be using those weapons in Ukraine. And the question is, what do we do then? Uh, and I'm not sure what we would do then. Would we use nuclear weapons? Would we then get dragged into the war? You know, when Professor Farkas talks about the consequences of this for the world order, I'm more worried about the consequences if we end up getting hit with nuclear weapons. I mean, we want to remember what President Kennedy did during the Cuban Missile Crisis. He was in a similar situation. What he did was he tried to dampen the conflict. He tried to work out some sort of deal with Khrushchev so we could both avoid getting vaporized. What the Biden administration is doing is exactly the opposite. It's upping the ante. It's putting Putin in a position where he might very well use nuclear weapons. Again, I think this is remarkably foolish. Evelyn Farkas, what do you... Okay, I think that's going to do it. So take care and turn, turn, turn around. Don't forget, and I will be with you again. Bye-bye.